He had amazing ability to wind up even though he didn't speak English. I liked him actually, I enjoyed it. You know, he was a tough guy and he was aggressive and he was he was angry. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Half past seven Friday morning. Very welcome along to OTBAM. Ashling, good morning to you. Good morning, Adrian. How are you? I'm flying. Thank you. And Colm, good morning to you. Ashling and Adrian, good morning. Happy Friday. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> no, Colm, just no. It's not happening. <laughs> well, where do you stand? You say that every morning, do you? No, uh, I Happy just. Thursday. Uh, no, I don't. No, yeah. Well, actually, that's that's fair. I should say it for other days as well. What's so special about Fridays? He's 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 been on edge, isn't he? He's like he's sort of he rambling as well, but he's not that coherent. No, he made this point to me and Owen one of the days, and he was hammering home this Happy Friday. It's not happy for everyone. We just don't know, so you can't go around saying Happy Friday. And now here we oh, go. All right, <laughs> wow. She's unlike Colm to have a strong opinion about something that makes no difference whatsoever. Um, commiserations. You all right? <laughs> That's tough. It's tough. You okay? It's tough. Yeah, it's going about my day yesterday. You know, it's trying to live my life and. Yeah. Uh, Went into the office, you know, and chatting away as you do. And I just got a text, Federer, crying emoji from a pal. Mm. And I looked on Twitter, and there he was. Statement. I just I was, four I, images long. I was in the middle of a, some sort of an online thing yesterday, and I just got a text saying Federer, full stop. I thought, oh, jeez, what is that? Any, the, the possibilities here are endless. Let's open to it. No, they're not. The on. possibilities he was very straightforward. If anyone is texting anybody but Federer at the moment. 41 years of age, hasn't played since Wimbledon last year. It, everyone knows what it's about. So when I got the text, I, was, I, I don't want to do this to myself. But then the push notifications were coming in and went onto Twitter and it was three minutes after he had posted the retirement message. But it's, uh, it's a very sad day. My own personal relationship with Federer. Mm-hmm. Now that you ask. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Now that you've asked yourself. Go ahead. When, he, when he first came through, I was like, wow. Wow, wow, wow! This guy, this guy is uh, is sensational. Yeah. And then I and then I had, ended up having an irrational dislike for him in the mid two thousands, simply because he was just too good. He was too good for everyone. Um, was this before the emergence of the other two? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So he kind of came in this um, transitional period for men's tennis, which is post Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, and then just before Rafael Nadal really started dominating on other surfaces beyond clay. Mm. So Nadal won his first uh, French Open in two thousand and five, but at that point. He was really just warming up on grass and hard courts. And then Novak Djokovic was still a few years away. I mean, the first time they played in a Grand Slam, I think, 2007. So in the intermediate years, in 2003 up to 2006, like Federer was just absolutely untouchable. And that, that's the point where I thought, no, this guy is too dominant. It's no fun. And it wasn't even that, you know, the way like Nadal and Djokovic would beat players of lesser ability would be, it would actually still be through graft it was superior ability but there was a lot of hard fought points and they really put the effort in to, to beat their opponents whether it's first round or final but with Federer he would just embarrass you and, and loads of opponents have said that when other players in the tour are talked about you know talking about the the big three and the best of the big three and there's differing opinions everybody has a different opinion on who's the best and there's arguments for all three but what people say regularly other players is that like on oh, like Nadal and Djokovic are just absolutely amazing you know they're probably going to end up with two of the greats in terms of numbers but nobody could destroy you like Federer mm. and it was the way he was doing it without seemingly breaking sweat on his side yeah he that was the big thing he looked effortless I felt mm. a lot of the time when he played yeah and 
but, but it wasn't, you see, and that's the thing because he put so much work in behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And like, there, there's loads of stats to back up uh, just his greatness. And look, we'll get into it with Jenny Claffey later. We'll break down, you know, Federer's technical player, what made him so brilliant. But one of the statistics that have re-emerged in the last 24 hours is that he played over 1,500 tour matches and he never retired once from a match mm. ever. Wow. So he actually, one of his underrated abilities was his resilience and his toughness and you actually wouldn't really associate that when you look at him because he was so graceful and calm and smooth and technical and the most naturally gifted player but he actually had um, mental strength that was unparalleled you know you just he was never flustered and I've been reading so many tribute pieces from him in the last last day and one thing that uh, I was I was actually laughing aloud as reading it in the office earlier was um you know, his one-handed backhand was just so beautiful to watch. But it was actually quite inaccurate. It was very inconsistent. And every so often, Federer would try a one-handed backhand and it would hit the rim of the racket and it would go way up into the air and it would end up uh, with the fans. And everybody would kind of start laughing a bit. But Federer was never flustered by that. And he never even looked to see where the ball was going. And someone famous, like Prince William or something, might catch the ball and everyone would start laughing. But Federer wouldn't look. And he would just be like, he would have a momentary pause or he would just stand still and look at his racket as if to say, how did something like that happen to someone as great as me? And then he would move on to the next point and just fix his hair that always, he had always one bit of hair that would come down over his headband, fix that, put it behind his headband and would go again. And then the next point was probably going to be an ace. Mental strength. Did the uh, Prince William story actually happen or did you just make that? No, up? I was just to really like, you know, stand out from the crowd there. I was like, he's in the news. Random so person I've been looking at. I'll just show it. It was, it was basically to, uh, to say, you know, there could be royalty catching a stray Roger Federer ball. It didn't matter to Federer. The only royalty for Federer was himself on the court. And actually, and he got to that point, and he did get to that point because it was the 2009 Wimbledon. At that point, there was just nobody to touch him. Really, Wimbledon, the year before, Nadal beat him in that epic, but he was still kind of the king of grass. And he won Wimbledon that year in 2009 against Andy Raddick, who he beat in three Wimbledon finals. He won that final set 16-14. It was an amazing match. But that was the year where uh, Federer wore the blazer. Oh, yeah. He had the yeah, white yeah. blazer going yeah, to court. Yeah. So, you know, he was royalty. And, and like he did see himself like that and you know of all the tributes coming in it was that he's a great guy and like really genuinely loved across the tour family man like himself a America go way back before they both became famous like they were both emerging tennis players mm-hmm. he's built an incredible brand for himself um, but there was there was a techie side to him too and I think we should say that as well I don't think it should all be he positive he had a temper issue when he was younger he oh well, well, that, I wasn't even going to mention that but yeah that's, that's really interesting is that um, Bjorn Berg was the same and Bjornberg was probably the only other player who was more calm than Federer. Mm. But he used to be like a strappy teen. And Federer was awful to deal with in the late 90s and he was coming through. And there's footage, you can see this, is that he would be castigating, in fairness, usually himself, but he'd be smashing rackets, you know, not too dissimilar to what we would talk about in the curious about all his bad behaviour. He was kind of like that. And then he, I suppose he just had a word with himself, like Borg did a couple of decades earlier. And he sorted himself out in the mental side. And every so often you'd see Federer kind of lambasted himself and it was very rare like you know he was kind of unflustered generally speaking mm-hmm. so he just changed his mentality completely but what I was actually going to talk about was you know he would he would kind of have <laughs> unkind words for the umpires in the change like? events I'm just laughing at like he's no, like I, know I hadn't laughing. prepared that answer but I, here's I know else. why you're laughing but in like change events if, if something uh, contentious had happened in the previous game he wouldn't be shy in telling the umpire mm-hmm. what he thought about him and like there, it's picked up in the mics if you go and you'll see it online it's like an umpire would try to justify their reasoning. 
and Federer would be like, no, no, don't talk to me, don't talk to me. He wouldn't even look at him. Mm. You know, he wouldn't even look at the umpire. So there was, there was that side to him too every so often, and he could be a bit smug. It's not quite Nick Kyrgios though, is it? I'm not, no, I'm no, not no, even no. going to look at you. I'm just saying I think, I think we should balance it by... And I love him, and I suppose you tend to... You tend to criticise people that you love the most, like with Federer, because I absolutely adore the guy. Uh, but I, I think favorite, to, to favorite tennis player of all time, or no? Um, no, Gorni Vanisovic. It was just a nostalgic thing for me. But I would think, yeah, of the big three, he'd be my favorite overall. Yeah, but it, it wasn't not like your, that. Not your favorite tennis player of all time. No, not my favorite player of all time. The goat. For me, yeah, but I would totally listen to uh, someone say Djokovic's or Nadal. Uh, or McEnroe, Borg, Sampras, Agassi, whatever. But for me, Federer is the GOAT because he made the sport so unbelievably enjoyable to watch, whether you were a tennis fan or not. And that's the, the ultimate compliment because even when he missed, it was kind of spectacular and a little mm-hmm. bit smooth. Will he go down as one of the all-time sporting greats? Yeah, 100%. Switzerland, Mount Rushmore, he's on it. He's definitely on it. Yeah, he's um, uh, cashmere. Iron jumpers. But I think so, yeah. I think like... You know, like it's a list that you'll never be able to properly quantify. But like, if there's a top ten best sports people ever, you know, he'd be he'd be in my top ten. Um, Aaron Kelly saying, "Morning, lads, and morning to you." Aaron, any ideas why Alexa's telling me I can't play OTB sports because of regional restrictions? Waterford's not that far away. Um, not sure, Aaron, but keep at it, keep trying. Um, Alexa, play OTB sports radio. That would have if Colm hadn't spoken across. Do it again, there. Come on, all right. Do it again. James McCullough says, uh, "Have you seen Renal's decision in the Australian New Zealand game yesterday? I'm shocked people are supporting it. He hadn't enforced the rule throughout the game, and is surely not in the spirit of rugby." We will talk about that a little bit more um, with some of our guests. And on, and here is a flavour of what's coming up for you on the show today, uh, between now and ten o'clock this morning. We're going to have Ronan Agar, first time this season in ten minutes' time, is going to drop by, and we may well put that point. Him about the Bledisloe Cup yesterday. Samuel Luckhurst of The Athletic will talk all things Manchester United. Jenny Claffey will expand on uh, Combs' points about the uh, retirement of the GOAT or not. Uh, GA Club latest with Ashling at uh, 10 to 9 this morning. Alan Quinlan will be in studio at 10 past 9. And we've Emma Byrne as well lined up uh, from the show last night. One other thing that we wanted to touch on at the top of the show was just the obviously Todd Bowley comments that have sort of been doing the rounds this week and everybody's picked up on them everybody's got a view on it you know there should be an all-star game north v south and there should be some sort of relegation playoff system and it just you know it was all kind of bubbling along and there was definitely something eating away at me about the general reaction to it I was looking at a lot of stuff online a lot of the English uh, newspaper writers uh, pundits there was just this tone of a sneer coming off a lot of the commentary around Todd Bowley and it had been sort of I couldn't quite put my finger on it but it had certainly been bubbling away and then we had the Jamie Carragher comments that might have been yesterday possibly even the night before um, where uh, he was saying that um, you know it's incredibly arrogant uh, to speak like that from you know somebody who's owned only owned a Premier League club for six weeks and it just dripped with arrogance for me that you would um, not be open to Carragher did qualify his comments in the Paramount piece that uh, where where these quotes were taken from to say that you know you have to be open to new ideas, but also at the same time he was like, well, you're not really supposed to have ideas if you're just joined the Premier League, and it just speaks to this football snobbery that exists, and you don't have to be a former player to um, subscribe to it. It happens every day of the week that fans, media former players, pundits, whatever it might be, just this football snobbery about like what you're not entitled to do or have an opinion on. Thierry Henry was sat alongside him in the studio who wasn't even able to verbalise his his comments about it. They were like himself and Jamie Carragher and Mika Richards were like 
three schoolyard bullies who had stolen the um, new kids' lunch and were all sort of sniggering around with their with their pals. And you know, he's not entitled to this view. Like it's just, it really speaks to this sort of football elitism that that exists and the snobbery that exists. And it really got under my skin. I have to say, yesterday, I just thought you're absolutely. And if you own, if you've invested enough to take on a Premier League club, you're entitled to a view about it. Like. Have have it out about the ideas. They're great conversation starters. Like we obviously were chatting about it in the studio here during the, during the week as well. Great conversation starters. You don't necessarily have to agree with it. I remember Arsene Wenger a few years ago was talking about like doing away with a throw in, replace it with like a kick in or something like that. Mad idea. But like nobody was saying Arsene Wenger is entitled to to a view about it. It's absolutely totally okay to chat about, about these yeah. things. Yeah. Have it out, percent, like. yeah, and like new ideas is a good thing. I don't think an all stars would be that bad of an idea, mm. you know, it, absolutely not. But I just hate the whole former players or players thinking that because you haven't played, and I know it's not just that, and I know it's not just former players, but for me, that's a really annoying one. Yeah, that you can't like sport is for everyone, football is for everyone to enjoy. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I really hate that. And yeah, absolutely, just snobbery at the, the highest regard. And what was Thierry Henry's point? Well, he t- honestly, there was no point. Okay. He just did a lot of this. I mean, like, oof, off, oof. Thierry, will you say something? Like, if you if you, if you have a point there, just get it out. But mm. he wasn't even able to, like, as a paid football pundit, uh, who was looking down his nose at this guy who'd invested, like, tens of millions into... Chelsea that he wasn't able to elicit a point which was which was absolutely infuriating but like I don't know it's just it does it is something that exists I see it all the time amongst fans amongst uh, pundits amongst the media just this snobbery about like you know people's entitlement to have a view about football like I spent three years in college getting a degree yeah and during that time during that time alone I spent far more time watching football than I did focus on my degree not to mind like the years previous and the years subsequently like you know I think anybody who's watching the you know if you're going to games you're watching games whatever it is whatever you're you're listening to it you're reading it you're watching this whatever it is you're entitled to view about football I don't let anybody tell you otherwise not definitely not Jamie Carragher and Thierry Henry and Mika Richards and like you need the fans, you need supporters, you need people watching the games. So, yeah. like having these type of views w- without the fans, there would there wouldn't be these massive occasions. There wouldn't be the the Premier League. You know, you need the the fans there, the supporters that are going to the games. And yeah, I just I never get it. Even sometimes players wondering wondering about pundits and what 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 is their job really? What do they do? Did you ever get that? Where oh yeah yeah I I just think that. Oh, and, is, this, and by the way, Ashling, <laughs> right now this might be sort of a reverse point that sort of undermines my previous point but like there's plenty of pundits that you listen to and I was listening to one this morning on the radio who like the sum total of what they're saying is a bed of sand like there's absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. in it so you know they're definitely not the type of people to be telling you exactly what your view on the whole thing there's an element of anti-American about it there definitely is there was the same sort of do you remember when Jesse Marsh got the Leeds job and he came in there was a lot of this Ted Lasso stuff going on and like that is just oh yeah they don't think they know as well yeah yeah, um, no, absolutely. Uh, Mika Richards was making a big play about the fact that Todd Bowley had mistakenly said that Salah and De Bruyne had come through Premier League academies, that they'd come through the Chelsea Academy or the City Academy or whatever, which isn't the case. But, like, ultimately, who the hell cares? He didn't know about that. He got it wrong. Who cares? It's mm-hmm. just this, uh, I don't know, this snobbery column. There is... Um well, what's your... Listening, I think, is the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. My producing. Somebody's well, telling I, me here, relax, Adrian, says... Um, 
says Dan Delaney. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking throughout the whole uh, rant there. Well said, Adrian. Completely agree. Him. Reaction to Bolly in Five the UK minutes. has been shocking, says Tennis Tank. A regular. Yeah. No, I'll talk about tennis. Um, anyway, it's anti-American, uh, says, says Tennis Tank again there. So, But uh, come here to me. Um, I, I presume your um, stance is that you don't mind a disagreement with Todd Bodies. Have a, have a full it, debate about the It's ideas. Carragher's last bit of the quote, so it's, uh, you know, I think it's incredibly arrogant, which you've already referenced. And the line I thought was kind of most striking in that sentence was um, about a lead that you don't know. Yeah. And that's the, you, yeah, have, no, you have no right that's to say. That's so, so wrong. Yeah, so, uh, well, like, what kind of a quote for you would have been acceptable from Carragher there? It would have been, uh, I see your point, but I disagree with this, or something even a bit stronger. Because the, the, there's the, something yeah. that's vexed you here particularly. Well, no, it's, it, as I said, if you were listening earlier on, what well, I, I said was, was that it was the bubbling along of this idea all week, and there was loads of the like big football correspondents uh, in England talking about it online, posting about it on social media, yeah. saying that, you know, um, looking on their noses, absolute sneering at Todd Bowley for his comments. If you watch the, it's like three or four minutes of uh, this Paramount conversation, it's just dripping with that stuff. Like, it just is. There, there's actually, there's no substance to what they're saying, really. Yeah. They're not really debating the ideas. And and I would accept, like, actually, I think the All-Star idea is a cracker. It's definitely one of those that you might see in the calendar at some point down the track. There are loads of reasons why it might not happen. Contracts, injuries, uh, fixture schedules, all sorts of interesting stuff like that. But at least have that debate. Their debate wasn't that. It was just sneering at Todd Bowley. Mm. Yeah, no, like, see, the problem is with that, like, that's a totally fair point, but you're referencing this in this conversation on Paramount, but, like, it's an echo chamber there, so no one's going to, no one's going to step back in that group and say, actually, lads, we should give the guy a bit of time, it doesn't matter so where he's from. should say that. Yeah, but that no one's going to do that, and I don't think that's, that will change. I think, like, if people say what you're saying now more often in more platforms, then maybe it will. Mm-hmm. and time change but there's 100% of snobbery uh, particularly toward that side of the world from this side of the world when it comes to football mm. yeah it says um, to come and speak like that this is from Jamie Carragher when he's not even proved he can run a Premier League club yet it's like you know yeah. they're just I, look for me I mean people are entitled to disagree with what I'm saying but I uh, it does get my goat um, Frank saying Adrian's Friday morning for Christ's sake um, <laughs> sorry Frank I'll, I'll, I will lighten in, in a little bit uh, JP Wright good morning to you JP met Jesse March in a pub in Salzburg during the Euros top man with a huge football IQ I mean nobody should be surprised about that he's managing in the Premier League it's uh, it's supposed to come at the territory. Uh, could it be linked to when the Super League, uh, when the Super League that was attempted to be discussed during COVID, says Michael, the entire project was seemed to be conceived and pushed by American billionaires. Maybe there's a bit of scar tissue there, is what you're saying. Uh, Frank saying that he thought Fridays were supposed to be jolly. They'll get jolly. It's fine. Don't don't worry about it. And Roy Dunne was saying uh, facts don't matter on OTV, especially when it comes to Manchester United. I don't know oh. what's the reference there. Nobody even mentioned United. No, well, yeah. Anyway, I mean, we not yet. Can, if you like, um, they won again. Uh, Murray says um, your job is the same as theirs. Your opinions mean nothing. Also, <laughs> oh, there we go. There's my hey, point. That's fine. That's all right. That's okay. That's okay. You're entitled to that. That's that's you get that off your chest, Murray Hislop. And uh, and feel better for uh, for doing that. Um, where else have we got here? Bum 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 bum. Single backhand is dead in tennis. Long live Kim King Feder, says Danny Mac. Man, Danny. Yeah. 
nothing else to say. That's your. That's no, your I think there. it is. I think it's a it's a high risk shot. Yeah, it's not advised the one handed backhand, but it looks amazing. Have you ever tried a one handed backhand? <laughs> No. Have you do you played? actually play tennis? Yeah. Do you? Yeah, I do. You strike me as one of these people who's just like, on, a lot sorry. of views, but you don't play a lot. No, I do play. Do you want? <laughs> oh, that's literally <laughs> the argument you you're just You're contradicting made. yourself, Adrian. <laughs> I know, I know. Just it, like, I would have every entitlement. That, but I mean, this is... <laughs> this is you weren't entitled this is to it. So, I didn't say you weren't entitled to it. Hang on a second. You, like, I didn't say you so weren't entitled to it. unbelievably you, right? I didn't say you You see this thing on Twitter, you're like, oh, I'll quote tweet that. Might get a bit of interaction. This would be good for me. So I'm like, oh, this is This is disgraceful. This is... I can't believe they said this. And then literally, the next next point you make was like why are you even talking about tennis you don't play it I didn't say I did not say that that's essentially I got that from your talk as usual I did language. not say that let's just make sure that's that that's absolutely on the record that's what I got um, but you do play tennis what you're saying after, after all of that nonsense now for the last day I play locally and there is a court you can rent for 6 euro an hour which is very reasonable mm. obviously yeah. it's 12 euro really because you're not going to play with yourself but like you know <laughs> you play like uh, 12 euro is quite um, that would reasonable. be an unusual tennis match although not beyond the well, if you had a wall, you're happy out, yeah. but I don't have a wall to play with, so get a person instead, you know. And uh, that's the booing speciality. <laughs> like the, uh... Uh, well, I, that's what I'm saying. So I try to one hand the backhand. Like it, they're it, they're wild. Like I mean, I have so much uh, even greater respect for any player on the tour who can make that such an effective shot. Actually, Dominic Team, who's kind of fallen off the face of the earth after winning the U.S. Open in 2020, he has a gorgeous one on the backhand mm. but um, no, you'd need a two-hander for stability because like, it's a high-risk shot otherwise but I have, I'm a two-hander backhand what's the, um, and a one-handed forehand what's your greatest achievement in tennis? Um, just to keep on playing at my age nothing is what just to grow so you, you can improve you didn't play at all uh, underage like when you were young no I did that's when, oh, I pra- that's when I mostly played so I got it to my mother um, so my mother played camogie yes for Claire mm. Twenty All Ireland, nineteen seventy four, against Dublin at Croke Park. Infuriatingly, she never mentions this ever. Like if that was me, I would lead with that yeah. all the time. But she just is like, oh yeah, whatever. Uh, medals up in the attic at home, and then when she moved to Cork, she gave up the camogie, and then uh, she transitioned into tennis because you know it's a natural enough transition, hand-eye coordination, and she took to it extremely well to the point where it was quite embarrassing for the street cred when. A teenager playing my mother, who's absolutely whipping me around the court with like a whipped forehand down the line, left hander. Left hander is very tough to play against. So uh, she taught me well. So I played a lot. I played very competitively when I was in my teens. <laughs> and then. Uh, very, very competitively. What does that mean? As in a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not you at a high level, like really I mean, especially like a lot. You don't hear that enough. I don't feel About in Ireland. Tennis. Tennis. Yeah, yeah, the, the, uh, yeah, playing a competitively underage, like yeah. it's it's not a like there's not a lot of clubs about. Um, there is, there's more and more now. And I know Jenny spoke about it a few times with us, but I just fa- found like growing up, I only ever played tennis when you went on holidays, and there was a, a tennis court, you know, in the hotel when you're abroad. That was the thing. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, and it Wimbledon, was, Wimbledon, Wimbledon, we were all Wimbledon, yeah, yeah, Wimbledon. Everyone was out with the rackets then, but other than that, it was. Was, it was almost difficult to get involved in tennis in Ireland. Um, Seb says, what do you think Roy Keane would have to say about this? She's <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know what he's referring to, but he could be referring to anything. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's yeah, that's no, then I stopped playing a bit because um, football took over. Oh, I, had yeah. to, I, had to decide, I had to decide my weekends. Uh, the, other, the other thing that we just wanted to touch on was the... Oh, you don't want to talk about that? Okay. What, what do you want to talk about? 
I'm joking. You're back to listening I'm now. Okay, you're back. You're tuned in again. Um, the other thing that we want to talk about is the uh, couple of things actually, but just the Roscommon Chiefs proposed 96 week ban for referee assault. Conor McKeown reporting the Irish Independent this morning. It's reported elsewhere, of course, as well. Uh, Roscommon GS disciplinary chiefs proposed 96 week uh, suspension for the person involved in the incident that led to the hospitalisation of a local referee and the abandonment of a minor football championship game. So it seems like that's the. Uh, category 4 infraction as it's called here uh, governing any type of assault on a referee umpire linesman or um, sideline official carries a minimum 48 week ban and I also think there's a cap and a maximum of that I think Will was saying yesterday that it seems to be um, kind of two years it's, it feels like the sort of thing they should leave more open ended like an assault on an official is up there with the most serious of yeah. things you could do and how it would um, I mean you know, there's just loads of other stuff that you would do that would end up in a two-year ban. That one just feels so egregious that why would you put a maximum on it? Yeah, it, it does. And you just don't want an allowance for this. And I feel like over the last number of months, even the last year, we've talked about so many different issues within the GA and, you know, fans shouting onto the pitch, uh, you know, shouting at managers, obviously refs, we've heard about so much. And now to hear of an assault, it feels like there's an allowance in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's it just can't creep into the game. It, it can't be allowed. And yeah, two years, I just, I, I don't agree that it, it's long enough for something like this it should be a, a life ban to do something like that it's it's just it's really it's unthinkable um, but yeah two years that it just doesn't seem right no and it I think, doesn't I think that like um, you also have to make uh, an example out of the case that's yeah. the reality because it's become very high profile and obviously we were speaking to a couple of referees in the direct aftermath of it a couple of weeks ago and like people are talking about it it has Disappeared as these things tend to do. They follow a 48-hour news cycle and then they disappear off the off the radar again. Back today because of the recommendation there. But I do feel that you have to... It doesn't send out a strong enough message for me. Like a 96-week ban, does that make anybody think twice if you're headed to any sort of a game this weekend in GEA or beyond? Does it make anybody think twice about like... Well, I better, geez, I better watch my behaviour because I could be out of the game for good here. Now, look, I don't know what happens after two years with this person. Do they end up coming back into that club and you're welcome back in oh good you know well done you've served your ban and on, on you come again and back into the sideline I don't know but it does feel like as if there's an extra step here that somebody of that mentality um, will at, at some point be entitled to come back onto the sideline feels and what does the ban wrong. mean that he doesn't go to the games Who's, who stops him well, how I, does it work can he walk into I the clubhouse know, but I presume it, it governs they typically tend to govern all activities so yeah um, See, that's very hard to police that as well. Um, yeah, but how many times have we talked about abusive referees in, in the GA over the last year or so? Like, it, it's a it's a crazy amount and it's it's constant. And I think that was the tip of it all. And mm. yeah, it, two years, yeah, it, do, it doesn't seem long enough. Um, there is a few fixtures as well this weekend, Ashling, that uh, club action is uh, the thing that's tiding us through all of these... Um, Fallow times where there's like nothing happening or whatever. So you yeah. marked our card last week. What have, what have we got to look forward to this weekend? Yeah, there's there's loads happening this weekend as well. Things are hotting up across the country with a lot of quarterfinals, semifinals, and even finals. Um, and it's quite diverse. So some uh, counties are only into round one, and then some are into finals. So it, it's mad the way it's being done. But uh, one of the ones to look out for probably is the Dublin Senior uh, Football quarterfinals are happening this weekend, and they're taking place in Parnell Park. It's a, a double header on Saturday and Sunday. So you've Nafina and Whitehall Column Kill. That's at quarter past five. Um, 
in Parnell Park on Saturday and at 7 o'clock it is Kula and Kilmico Croak so yeah I think that's a, a pretty one. pretty tasty one to, to look out for It'll be interesting to see what happens with Shane Walsh I've been watching a bit and they're obviously my new club or ish newish club so I'll be oh, keeping I didn't a fair know that. eye on them yeah, yeah, oh yeah, sorry yeah, I thought yeah. you said your newish club oh, sorry I, Shane I, 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 well both to a degree oh. but um, yeah no I am I am uh, but the young fella joined there a year ago oh, so brilliant. I'm down there coaching the next level of uh, Dubs Ashling and it's uh, oh god Adrian it's a part of it that sort of obviously eats away at my soul but yeah. it's hugely enjoyable and it's great club. so yeah the the um, well, they were the nursery last year, so whatever they are after that, they move into like the elite level of under sevens. I think it is. Oh, that's brilliant! Nice. Mm. Are that's pa- great. Are you patient? <laughs> oh, Jesus! That uh, what sort of a question was that? What did you say? Are you patient? Question? Yeah, patient. How is oh. that his first question? Actually, do you think is there something like? I thought you know like you're. Uh, do you think managing I'm patient? Young today? minds. Um, um, Creativity is at large that age. I asked. Um, Discipline, where is it? We so obviously what what ends up happening is like a hundred. There was one hundred twenty kids that turned out last Saturday. That's what morning. I was going to ask, how many the, kids big, are big there? Big numbers, like yeah. big numbers, and um, so there's a lot of takes a lot of managing, whatever. But I've been we uh, we're trying to obviously put a lot of drills in place that makes it fun. It's not really like hugely skills based. Specifically, uh, hurling or football skills based just yet. It's a lot of sort of fun and activities. Yeah. And you're, you basically want to come down, the kids to come down and enjoy it. That's, I want that's to come back. what's going on. So I asked Tommy Welsh uh, last year, I said, listen, we're doing this thing. And I knew that he was involved in the underage, his underage teams at home. So I was on to him saying, listen, have you any drills there? Because, like, obviously, Kenny would be the benchmark. Like, what sort of drills are you doing with, with kids? And he did send me on some stuff. But before all of that, he said, listen, the main thing you have to do with that age group is if you're keeping their laces tied, that's it. Like, it's, it's job done. There's no point in overthinking it. There were so many yeah. times I was in Crow Park with Tommy and we'd be covering like Leinster finals. You mm-hmm. know, Kilkenny would be playing and he'd be on the phone every few minutes. His under eights would be playing and, you yeah. know, such a massive interest. This yeah. was massive, like, and his son was yeah. playing as well. So, you know, he was keeping tabs on it all. And here's Kilkenny in the Leinster final. And here he is on the phone. What's going on? <laughs> How's he doing? It's so yeah. much fun. It is yeah. so much fun. But, and like, there's, there's, so like last last week, so there's like they split them up into groups. Like you might get sort of eight or nine or ten or whatever it is in a group, and you try to get uh, one parent to two kids if you can. So you can imagine the amount of parents that are involved at that level. But it's not; it doesn't quite work out to that exact number. But it's it is so much fun. It's so enjoyable. I honestly often think that I'm getting far more out of it than my young fella is. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a great crack. And uh, somebody's been in touch here to wonder, see, can we uh, can we share those drills? Um, they weren't. It was one of the drills was where you you would put the you would. The parent, the coach would stand in the middle of a circle with the kids all around them, like maybe sort of a metre or two metres away, and they would all have balls and they would try to get them into the circle and you'd be trying to get them out as quick as you could. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Uh, that was to try and promote them. So that was one of them. That was, uh, was great fun. Anyway, Shane Walsh has obviously joined the club and uh, we're waiting for him to turn up for the nursery one of these weeks yeah. and give us a master, master lesson. But I have been paying attention to what they've been up to and, um, you know, at some point they're going to get himself and Manion on the pitch from the off and they are going to be they're going to be unbeatable somebody was talking to somebody and they were saying that they'd be competitive that you know be very competitive in Division 3 of the National Football League yeah do you like do you like people saying that I don't know um, it probably stands to reason in a lot of in a lot of ways but particularly when you lash in like basically one of the best yeah the top well you have to see how they play together that's that's yeah. a massive thing as well um, but really big players you know big performers so yeah. how they link up together all of that but uh, I'd say maybe 
this weekend will this be his start um, mm. I know he spoke about not coming into the club and not expecting to be played straight away and that's understandable but uh, I think he's there for a reason and he's there to play and I'm sure he'll probably start from uh, the off at the weekend so yeah that's a, a game to definitely look out for um, then in me I have to mention me the quarterfinals in the the men's what are you laughing at Colm in the men's senior yeah. football um, my own club Ratota against Manalvi and that's in Dunchoclin on Sunday Sunday, that's at 4.30pm um, David Brady is the manager there so that's a, a, a big All right. yeah. who's he managing? Retote my club right, yeah. okay. so uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see how they go uh, they're going well at the minute so uh, if they can go the whole way quarterfinals this weekend so that will be a big one then as well, you can catch Donegal Club Action. That's on TG Cahar on Sunday. Uh, Glenn Swilly against Nave O'Connell. That's at 2.15pm. TG Cahar, if you're at home, you can tune into that. And then in the hurling, it's only the first round of the Kilkenny Championship, would you believe? Uh-huh. You'd wonder why or what's going on that you're only in round one. Uh, Glenmore GA Club against uh, Ballyhale Shamrock. So that's at uh, 4.10 on TG Cahar. So yeah, tune into that one as well. And then in the LGFA, so probably my pick of that would be Breda GA Club in County Down. So they're actually in the senior and the intermediate final. So they're playing in the senior against Castlewellan and then in the intermediates against Burn, and that is in Kulku at 1 and 3 p.m. And the reason I mentioned that as well is because obviously a club to have a senior and intermediate teams mm-hmm. and the intermediate team only won the junior last year. So to go from the junior to into the intermediate final and then your senior team is in the final. They were also Ulster champions last year. So the talent is is endless there. So yeah, that is one to, to watch out for maybe on Twitter as well, that they're good online on down uh, LGFA site as well. So if you wanted to watch out for those results so yeah lots happening good stuff good stuff yeah good stuff and uh, what are we where are we going Colm are we well I'm um, it is handy having here for to ask these questions <laughs> no it's good yeah. um, no we're always wondering like uh, we're always fascinated when we look at the numbers and like um, where people are interested in what they consume for us and it's like every time we do anything on Celtic people are just absolutely fascinated by it <laughs> and um, you know we were talking pre-show we're going to say to Ashley, you know, we get a Celtic update how the season's going. But we know how it's going because Ange Pascal is doing an amazing job from the outside looking in. Um, but Emma made the point beforehand, it was, you know, what about the links with Brighton? And what I'd love to know is, I presume you think that Pascal should stay at Celtic. But is there not a big argument to say that it would further his career if he goes, to, not necessarily to Brighton, but to the Premier League? And Brighton are, have a really, really good squad that Graham Potter left behind. Would that actually be career progression if you take away the emotion attached to Celtic? Is your question, is it career progression if it's he goes a, to Brighton? It's a good question. What is his, yeah, what is his question? Is it career progression? Well, I'm saying, I'm hinting p- that it is, but I presume that you disagree with that. But I'd love to know if you do and I why presume, you do. I presume, um, Yeah, I, I do. I do disagree if that, if that is the question. Uh, I don't think leaving a club as big as Celtic to go to Brighton um, would be further in his career. Um, that's he's playing well. He's involved with Champions League football at the minute. That it, that's massive, and he's doing a job. Like it, it's it's building something, and you know every player that he signs, it's to play the Ange type of football, and you can see that from the outset. And even players that might have been there beforehand in Celtic that maybe they're brilliant players but they might not fit into Ange's style and you can see what he's trying to do and this isn't going to be a, a year or a few months you know it's going to take time and definitely Ange is in it for the, for the long haul for the next 
couple of years, I would say. Um, I hope so, because everybody at Celtic does love him. The fans love him. And yeah, I would say that it's for the next couple of years because he does want to do big things there. And you can see that he's not brought all these players in for no reason. Um, but yeah, to go to the Premier League, of course, I'm sure if you want to be the, the top manager, the Premier League is where you want to go and that's where you want to go and manage. And where maybe more money is but uh, I think for Ange at the moment that he has a job to do with Celtic he knows that and he has his, his family his kids that's massive for him there you know in the youth system in in Scotland playing in the youth system there uh, playing their soccer that way so uh, I don't think he would up and leave very easy um, and I just think overall he's excited by Celtic you know it's a massive club and I don't like when people say uh, you know compared to, to Brighton and no offence to Brighton I think Celtic is a much bigger club than Brighton do you agree with me or do you I'm obviously a Celtic you, supporter you, so even if you look at some of the previous club. managers like Neil Lennon left to go to Bolton, Bolton at some point Bolton, yeah. uh, Tony Mowbray left at some point Brendan Rodgers left to go to Leicester like the, that's the that is there. the route that's the, well that's that's <laughs> what, you know but look at absolutely well yeah look um, what happened there with Rodgers with Leicester with Rogers, it was a success until this season yeah um, it's an impossible argument in some ways because like you're coming from a position where uh, you know, you believe because you're a Celtic supporter, and I appreciate that. That, that uh, you know, Celtic are far better than 75 percent of the Premier League. It's a better club to be involved with, and most of that is to do with the Champions League. And I think that's absolutely fair rationale. Obviously, particularly if you're a manager, particularly for a player, I'm sure it's a huge attraction for players to go to um, Celtic and Rangers because well, you're going to be playing Champions League football versus like involved in some sort of a battle for relegation or mid mid table medi- mediocrity, whatever the case might be. But um you know, in terms of pay and profile, I'm sure the Premier League is more attractive. Profile, I don't know if I agree with that. Profile that some of the Celtic players have massive profile. Some of the best players have came from Celtic. Mm. You know, you you have to look at the likes of Larson, like one of the, the biggest names in, in football, one of the best players, I would say, to, to play the game. Um, a lot of people started their careers at Celtic, ended their careers at Celtic. And for a lot of people, it's actually an aim within their mm. career to, to go to Celtic. And um, just even the fans are something else. And obviously, I know I'm a Celtic supporter, but if you have never been to Celtic Park... Yeah. Have you ever been? No, I've been oh, outside it, but not inside it. Did you yeah. just watch the, the game, the Champions League game against Real Madrid? It was on TV last week? Oh, yeah. The Come on, lads. No, no, no. What I did, night was that? Was that Thursday night? No, it was, it was in Slovakia. It was Thursday it was afternoon. It was Tuesday. No, Tuesday. Last week. Oh, okay. Champions League. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. Um, Tony Cruz said something afterwards. Yeah, so that's what, what I was going to say. So, obviously, a lot of players have been asked what's their favourite stadium to, to play in. And the likes of Messi has talked about Celtic Park. Like, some of the biggest players in Iesta has mentioned Celtic Park. And after the game against Real Madrid, Celtic lost 3-0. And, yeah, Tony Cruz spoke about his favourite stadium. And he said, I was being asked several times which away stadium is my favourite. And there is a new number one. I can tell you, Celtic Park... It has been just crazy. We came out and the atmosphere was good. But then the Champions League anthem came up and I thought the stadium will crash down. And then they did it again when they did the huddle. When we lined up for the team picture, I told David Alaba, when it, it feels like we're already 2-0 down. It's just insane. <laughs> the first 20 minutes, they pressed incredibly on us and had chances. The fans pushed them even more. The fans kept going till the end. 
And even when we scored the third, they still were pushing the team. And then they made changes near the end and the whole stadium got off their feet. The real special thing was not only did they push their team, but also they respected us. There was no hate. I'm used to a lot over the years, but this really impressed me heavily. A great experience. Mm. Well, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. I'm you kind of need interested to get to, to, uh, to the, Celtic that he Park. Said that, uh, he said to David Alba, we're 2-0 down already! Jeez, yeah. <laughs> you're trying to spread well, it's a bit of positivity blown. there. <laughs> uh, right, it is uh, 10 past 8. You're watching OTPAM, brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Some great comments into us already and uh, do keep those coming in with the football or the tennis, whatever else it is that you're having this morning. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and we've plenty still to come on the show. But, uh, want to focus a little bit on the European action from last night. First off, uh, Sheriff Nil, Manchester United two was their result in that game delighted to say Samuel Luckhurst writer on all things Manchester United for The Athletic is on the line morning Samuel Good morning it's the Manchester Evening News not The Athletic Manchester Evening News my bad and apologies for that uh, talk to us about the game last night must uh, must win game obviously after losing to Saucy Dad uh, Sheriff not great but I guess job done yeah they had to win the game they lost their first game in the Europa League uh, six years ago uh, en route to winning it and they were a little bit up against qualifying from that group in the end because they, they lost two of their first four games but although Sheriff had that uh, they, they claimed scalp of Real Madrid last season that, that squad has pretty much been gutted so it's a very different side that United played last night United had the benefit of a week's rest because of the postponements last week and as, as Ten Hag said himself, they, they had a pretty bumpy start, but after that, um, they, they got into their pattern of play and it was a pretty straightforward win. And I suppose just frustrated for United that they can't really maintain that momentum in the Premier League because uh, unlike most of the other teams in, in, in the top tier, they've, they've got two postponements to contend with. So they're in this strange period now where they will go four weeks without playing in the Premier League. Yeah, and back with a bang when they do come back. Um, they're becoming obviously much more familiar with the, or, or as familiar, let's say, with the Europa League as they would have been with the Champions League over the years, sixth, sixth time in the last 12 years that they've played it. And there used to be a lot of conversations, Samuel, about the value of it and what sort of team selection it should be. That conversation amongst fans and, and uh, players and the media seems to have disappeared a little bit. Is, what's your sense of how dialed into the Europa League Eric Ten Hag is? Oh, he's completely invested in it. I mean, you only have to look at the two teams that he's he's picked so far. Ronaldo has started in both the games. He did rotate a bit for the Sostad game, but that was that was forgivable. United had, uh, had won a good run of form in the Premier League. They had a game at Palace on the Sunday that he had in mind, of course, with, with certain selections. And you, you've got to rotate in, in, in a number of games. You can't play the same team every time. And sometimes you get a, a better gauge of, uh, of certain players' character and, and where they're at and how well they can uh, perform when they're called upon uh, all of a sudden. And the truth of the matter is there were very few performances uh, that were worthy of note against Osjedad. I think uh, Christian Eriksen was was probably the only one who came out of that game with any credibility. But Ten Hag was, was a tad complacent. I mean, there, there were two almost pre-planned substitutions with, with Dallow and Eriksen coming off against Sociedad at half-time, which seemed strange when it was nil-nil. United ended up losing 1-0 with no game this weekend. I think everybody expected him to play the strongest possible team uh, in Moldova, and, and he did that going off form and player availability. So it does maintain a little bit of momentum despite these um, uh, the, these gaps between games. And there's obviously going to be a 17-day gap now for them to contend with 
until the Manchester derby. But going into that game, even though that's still over a fortnight away, looking at the team last night, you would probably say there'll be at the very most two changes, but more likely one change, which at the moment, provided he is fit for that game, would be Rashford for Ronaldo. And on that basis, I was almost slightly surprised to hear you say, Samuel, that uh, Ten Hag was taking the Europa League seriously because he started Ronaldo. So is your sense that he's, uh, on the basis even of the last couple of games, that he's getting close to that starting eleven, or he's there? Not necessarily. I think that Ten Hag does prefer uh, the more fluid front three of uh, when all are fit, which has, has not been the case very often at all so far this season because of Marshall's injury, but it would be Sancho and Marshall and Rashford, and you've got two of the wingers switching. Um, sorry, that would have been the case at the start of the season, but of course he's brought Anthony in, so Anthony's obviously the starter on the right-hand side. Sancho is pretty much the preferred pick on the left. Centre-four is interesting because Martial did have a very good pre-season, but he's he's only played one half all of, all of the season so far, so it's it's not easy to see him getting his way back into the team uh, already. With Ronaldo, some of the some of the movements he goes upon and you know, the positions he takes up, I think he's probably the only player in that squad who could do that. But he has been snatching at chances. He has looked a bit desperate to get off the mark this season, and it, it, it is getting to the point where it would be a slight surprise if he did start the derby if if Rashford uh, was available or if Rashford and Marshall were available. There's, there's still no time frame on when Marshall will come back, but it does seem quite apparent already that Ten Hag does prefer the fluidity of Martial or, or Rashford up front to Ronaldo, who obviously where he's turning 38 in, in February, he's not going to be as mobile as those players, but he, he could still end up scoring more goals than those players because you just have to look at his uh, look at his record. It felt watching them last night that things were starting to click at times. And I think Jaden Sancho was probably a big reason. He got, he got a great goal, the first goal, and he almost had a second, but he's really on form at the minute. He is. He's in terms of his goals output. He he had to wait until February to get his third goal last season. To have three in September already is is very good going. He does still have a tendency to meander through games. He, he scored obviously against Liverpool and, and Leicester, and after he scored in those matches, which was relatively early in the first half of both of them, he you didn't hear much from him after that. And when you're a winger, that's going to be noticeable because there is a big onus on you to, to affect games, to be involved as often as possible. So he can still go quiet, but he is becoming a more consistent match winner, frankly. And it was it was good timing for him after the England squad announcement. Um, he, he was extremely unfortunate to be overlooked for, for that um, for, for these games this month. But historically, Southgate has never really taken a shine to him. And there are reservations in the England setup uh, when, when Sancho has been involved. That said, you look at Jack Grealish, who was underwhelmed for upwards of a year at Manchester City and has done next to nothing this season. That mantra that Southgate came out with five and a half years ago, whenever it was, that he would pick players on form rather than reputation has completely been flipped now. Um, there are a lot of players in that England squad who are in solely because of their reputation for what they've done for Southgate England level. And I suppose where Sancho is performing more consistently now and Grealish is doing next to nothing, Grealish has got no hiding place now. So it is still one to keep an eye out on ahead of the, the, the World Cup squad selection. But I suppose Grealish has some credit in the bank with Southgate for some of the, the cameos he had at the Euros last season.
Yeah, that was something that Paul Scholes had said after the game that he, he thinks that Jaden Sancho deserves a place ahead of Jack Grealish. I'm guessing that's something that you agree with? Not necessarily ahead of, but he, he certainly should have been in the squad. I mean, you you have to factor form into it because I think the danger Southgate has got at the moment is that a lot of his favourites are either out of form or not playing. He's not got the courage to drop any of the right-backs. There are four right-backs in the squad again. Uh, that's too lopsided. The two left-backs are in, by default, Luke Shaw and Ben Chilwell. They're not playing regularly for their clubs. It's difficult to really see them playing regularly for their clubs between now and when the World Cup squad is announced. Calvin Phillips has gone to Manchester City um, and everybody thought he would be a reserve at Manchester City and he has been. He's, he's played something like 14 minutes this season. Uh, Grealish, is, I think he started once in the Premier League. England are still very much dependent on Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling as their match winners. Um, obviously, with with Harry Maguire, he's not put a foot wrong for England, but you can't ignore his situation at Manchester United. And his situation has been dire for pretty much a year now. Uh, he's He's been either out of form or, in the case of this season, he's been dropped altogether. The impact of Rafael Varane this season has, has not reflected well on Maguire at all. In that, However way you look at it, it's not a coincidence United have conceded two goals in 495 minutes with Varane on the pitch. The five games he started in, they've won. The three games he hasn't started in, they've lost. And of course, unfortunately for Maguire, he has started in those three games that United have lost this season. So Southgate has he is taking a risk by placing reputation ahead of form with a number of players at the moment who would likely start uh, for England in Qatar. And also he's he's got to probably show this month with these upcoming Nations League games that there's a willingness on his part to, to integrate Jude Bellingham into the, the starting eleven. because as far as rounded midfielders go in the England squad, he is the best by far. Yeah. Before we let you away, the obviously postponement of games um, and the international window means that there's a long time between drinks for United, but in all evidence, uh, domestically in the league looking, looking very good. And as you mentioned, October the 2nd, um, Man City, there was a time not that long ago where we wouldn't have given United a shake in this one, but all recent evidence, uh, good wins over big clubs suggest that it could even be close. It could. They've, they've got the monster of Erling Haaland to try and slay, of course, and that's going to be a fascinating matchup between him and Varane. I mean, Varane would be the injury United fans dread the most. And unfortunately for United last season, there, there was an international period where he did pick up an injury and they had a couple of horrendous defeats um, pretty much straight away in, in October against Leicester and, of course, the, the 5 0 Shelleking by, by Liverpool as well. So they, they really need Varane to stay fit over the next fortnight and be available for that game. Uh, having Rashford back, it's it's strange how it has changed all of a sudden that Rashford has become integral to United this season because he really wasn't last season. But he does complement that front three very well at the moment, and it's got to the point now with with Casemiro where has where he's he's looked so cumbersome in his performances so far that McTominay has more than earned his place in the side. He may have been a bit fortunate to have been starting after Casemiro first arrived, but he has gradually improved and he was particularly good in the Arsenal game. But Casemiro, when you look at his credits and his presence, he's still someone that they're going to have to consider for that game against City, particularly where City do play a three-man midfield and United might have to make an adjustment there. But they're, they're competing. Again, that's what they needed to become this season. I think that's been the bare minimum United fans want 
from Eric Ten Hag's side is for United to become a, a competitive and credible force again and, and start to climb their way up the ladder. And you know, despite those those two debacles against Brentford and, and Brighton at the start of the season, they have started to do that. And it's just a pity for them, as I said, that their, their momentum has subsided slightly uh, where they've got two postponements to contend with. You mentioned Rafa Varane there. He's been, I think, really impressive so far. He's really solid at the back. And just listening to Den Hag speak about him yesterday and his leadership qualities, you can really see what he sees in him. And yeah, he, he really rigged him. It's interesting how it's developed between the two of them in the at one point pre-season, it seemed that Varane was fourth-choice centre-back and that when we spoke to Ten Hag in Melbourne, uh, he, he clarified that Lissandro Martinez was being brought in to strengthen the team rather than the squad. We put it to him with Harry Maguire. He's captain. Does that make him first choice? He said it did. So before the season has even started, he'd committed himself to a first-choice partnership of Maguire and Martinez and Lindelof I think Victor Lindelof played in the five started the five friendlies he was available for so he was actually starting ahead of Varane in pre-season so it gave this impression that Varane was actually fourth choice at United since the season started of course they they had two dreadful results uh, Lindelof got was injured as well he's, he's barely played so far this season and Ten Hag was very decisive in actually deciding that Varane should come back into the team. I think I did the story about five days before the Liverpool game that he was considering dropping Maguire for Varane when I was told it was lots. At the time, it was, it was stronger than that. He had pretty much decided there and then that, that, that Varane would be starting that game, that game at the expense of Maguire. And Varane has been, he's been known faultless. Uh, the way Ten Hag speaks about him, he described him as immense the other week and he is, he is really living up to that billing at the moment. And it does feel like a trick of the mind that he was very, temp- very, very briefly fourth choice in, uh, at centre half in pre season. But then again, when he did first play with Martinez, which I think was in the final friendly against Vallecano, Ten Hag did say unprompted how well, uh, Varane and Martinez did as a duo so there were signs in that final friendly that he liked what he saw from them but he he took his time to obviously put them together and in in the meantime United had probably I mean the the Brentford game was probably their worst performance in, in nearly 50 years it really was that bad and it's not a coincidence that Varane looking back to last season as well he was absent for almost all of the thrashings. Uh, all, I think United conceded for at least four goals in, in six games last season, and he was absent for five of them. He was, of course, absent for uh, the, the Brentford game this season, where he started on the bench and only came on at half time. And when he did come on at half time, United actually kept a clean sheet for the second half. So his, his importance to United is it, it, it can't be understated mm. at the moment. He is very much their most important player. Yeah. All right. Interesting times in Manchester. Samuel Luckhurst, Manchester Evening News. Thanks a million. Thank you. Ronan O'Gara, good morning to you. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Ashley. How's it Hi, going? Ronan. Great. Yeah, very well. Very well, thank you. A couple of weeks into the season, you've uh, two from two and you have Perpignan tomorrow. Life is good? Uh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be getting too carried away. Um we uh, have had a better start, obviously, than, than last season, which wasn't too difficult. But uh, uh, we have a better squad this year, and the atmosphere is better. So um, pre-season was good. Uh, we have momentum. Uh, changed up the team 
for tomorrow a little bit. Um, so interesting to see opportunities for for certain guys and. Um, Alton Delan, is that what you're saying? No, Alton is. Um, he's um, he was involved against Leon, but unfortunately got a, a little bit of a, a tweak in the yeah. uh, in the buttocks um, playing on a synthetic pitch. So. Uh, we need to mind him a little bit for a week or two. But, uh, yeah, he's been brought integrated really well, very popular with the boys, great um, work rate in him and a uh, smile on his face, so really pleasant to have in the environment. Uh, you talked about the environment and the atmosphere there a couple of times and I was looking at it last night. You've uh, 34 players out between uh, retirements and departures. Was that right? But It looked like a big old number and 10 players in. Is that, are they, is that right or did I... Have I landed myself on some dodgy website that was reporting misinformation? You've had a few too many whiskeys. So <laughs> <laughs> it's only 25 past eight. <laughs> I understand we're in France, but 34, no. <laughs> I was thinking that's the whole team is gone. 14, right. <laughs> and the backup. Yeah. They, they even have them listed out here. I don't know. It's... Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, there's, there's a bit of there's a bit of uh, change around is what we're saying. Is that is that fair enough to say? There's been, um, yeah. There's been, um, kind of fourteen. Yeah, have um, left or yeah, fourteen. I suppose have are not here and and recruited uh, seven with an emphasis on probably uh, quality. Um, and younger players coming up, you know, I think that was the one big thing that I suppose that uh, refreshing me in the time with Scott Robertson, how he sets up young players to succeed. So I really bought into that, I think. And um, I remember being that young player, but then as you get older, you forget it and you become the experienced player. But I think there's a definite formula for seeing uh, the best of young players and how you can set them up. Um, so that's very much to the fore of, of, of my mind because you can always say oh, next time or next time give the advantage to the experienced player. Uh, but something I'm big on is trying to just... Uh, young players don't feel pain. They don't, they don't spend time on the ground. They hop off the ground. They get up. They don't get hurt. When we older players of miles on the clock, you have, you think about things. I think when you're under 25, you don't uh, you don't really think. You act first. While people who understand their bodies, I think with time and experience, they, they know how to manage it. But I suppose the the fearlessness of youth is always a great, I think, element in your team, and you have to mix that with experience. You can't have an all, an OAP team. You need you need to mix it. And when you're bringing in these younger players and new players, how do you go about integrating them into the team? I often wonder, is there a lot of emphasis on off-the-pitch stuff to get them to, I suppose, to, you know, be comfortable in the environment? Because I'm sure pre-season is so important to get a good start to the year because obviously things can be affected then from then on. So you want them to, to be able to be comfortable in the environment so that they kick on from there. Yeah, and... The big thing too is that some of this is probably over glorified or emphasized by, by coaches. It's quite simple in the fact that these guys have a, a pretty stable structure around them that they're in the academy, they're esports, and they have to do, I suppose, college. It's, 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 uh, um, 
obligatory in, in France in, in the academy system that they have to be doing education with their rugby to, to 21 years of age. So they're well looked after here uh, in that regard. And I'm a big believer in if they have something aligned with their rugby, they have a better chance of succeeding with their rugby because it's the brain, I think, works better with that distraction as opposed to all all the eggs in the basket. Rugby, rugby, rugby. It just doesn't do do anyone any good and it's not sustainable so we put a big emphasis on that but the most important thing is that they can be themselves whether they're 17 or 18 or 35 that the environment um, caters for them to be themselves and that's I mean, we have a very different mix here with someone like Raymond Rue who's a bundle of energy and floats around and dances to music and then you have some very studious guys who need to be serious to be performing but for younger players it doesn't matter what age they're they have to feel themselves to be able to perform and uh, we try and integrate as many as possible in pre-season but the other side of it too is that you're trying to compete and win medals on both fronts so it is naturally quite ruthless but you don't necessarily want them to be feeling that they have to be ruthless having come uh, so close obviously in the um a top fourteen a couple of years ago, and then getting the Heineken Cup in the in the bank uh, last year. I presume all of that stuff helps with that culture and mentality that that you're talking about. Have you specifically sat down? I did wonder that if this was the year you put a special emphasis on the top fourteen, um, having the European title in the bank and and wanting to get over the line domestically. Is that something you speak about, or is that just like I know, I know you'll tell me now we're going for it on all fronts we want to win all games but is there a special emphasis on the top 14 this year? No there isn't because there's a special emphasis on the next half a day I think that's the way I work you know I think I'm very big on just I suppose consistency of behaviours consistency of personality just try and be yourself and if the boys are self-driven the environment is there for them but like I can't drive them I can inspire them but I can't motivate them so I think that's very important that that's internal inside them and I think it is in this group at the first I think championship yes it was the first championship for these guys but it was the first championship in the club's history which is quite staggering when you think about it like that but when you've knocked one over you want to you want to knock as many others as you can in, in a short period of time but you got to remember that's in, a, in my game, that's a long, long time away, Adrian. It's next June or May for Champions Cup. So it's it's futile thinking of silverware. At this stage, you're just trying to, I suppose, establish uh, what your standards are on, on what your players want to achieve with each other. And then the great thing about it is that we have only 80 minutes every week to show what training is training. But boys need to get excited about playing games and that's what we do here I think we review our games well and then we set ourselves up to hopefully succeed the following Saturday or fail and then there are certain learnings that you take and you become better at I often wondered to be a successful team you have to have a buy-in from the whole panel the whole squad and as a head coach or a manager it must be extremely tough to keep everybody happy how do you go about that, I suppose, with lads that aren't making the squad and things like that? Because I think uh, you spoke about it before, that you need to have the buy-in from everyone and I suppose everyone's not happy all the time. Yeah, exactly, of course, Ashley. But I think, you know, I'm fooling myself thinking of getting buy-in from everyone, you know. That just won't happen, you know. You're going to have five stragglers here and there. 
that's normal. It's just that you don't want these boys bringing down, I suppose, the middle tier who are uncertain. But I think after last season, sometimes actions are way more powerful than words in Marseille for whatever it was, 20 minutes, 20 seconds when that whistle goes. If that doesn't stimulate you to be better, nothing will. So I can go up to the top of the room and, and get excited and do what I want, but the boys have tasted it now and believe me, it tasted incredibly good and they'll tell you that. So they have a little taste for it now. So they want to kick on. How do you, they say there's always that element in a, in a group that sort of went to your talk with the four or five who no matter what you do, you're not going to get by and, and you generally tend to spend most of your time, I suppose, uh, with those characters. How do you manage all of that? Um, you make a plan and you kind of have to, I suppose, make sure your staff is aligned and you're thinking the same because people, assistant coaches, coaches may think differently, but if they think differently, then we're going to be split. But So we have to make sure our messages are very coherent and cohesive and uh, aligned to what the player is hearing, not what we say, but what the player is hearing because mm. it's two different things. What you say to something may not be what the player hears, so that's been a good learn for me. So sometimes you finish a meeting and you ask, well, what did you hear today from your coach? And if he repeats what you think you have said to him, then you're that's buy-in for me. But um, I think it's not the same group and it's not the same team. And that's why this year is very exciting. The fact that, as you said, there's 14 got out, there's seven got in. You think that Johan Tanga or Anton Astoy are interested in what happened in Marseille. No, they're not. They weren't there. That wasn't their time. Their time is now. So we started... Two weeks ago, we started well. We had a sticky first game, uh, but the boys showed great character. And then we were very good last week. Well, not very good. We were good last week for 75 minutes. And then nearly, uh, typically in our in our way of the world, we nearly gave away the game. So we got to try and, um, you mean, strive to be performing tomorrow for more than an hour. Because I think for, for 80 minutes at this stage of the season, it's a little bit unrealistic. So... You kind of just create mini goals with the boys and then um, but it's probably a little less serious than you think you know we've got some good, good fun guys here Will Skelton is back tomorrow Winnie Antonio and I think their their way of how they set themselves up to perform is very interesting they love smiling they love laughing they love joking and I think once you appreciate that and you know that they're going to be giggles in the room before game that means that they're excited yeah it's not that they're not interested that every player is different that might be their way of getting themselves motivated yeah that, that was the big thing I suppose when I was at Munster we were very very serious felt that you I mean you nearly like were the bold kid in school where you put your nose in the corner and don't speak to anyone and that that means I'm serious but you go to you know what I mean, Fiji, or you go to the Crusaders, you go to Rassi, you know, all different ways of how people prepare to perform, because you got to remember, it's sport too, and a lot of these guys in their heads are, think they're artists, some of them aren't, some of them aren't. <laughs> <laughs> once you know that, you know what buttons to push, and, and you leave them off, because what happens around the world isn't necessarily what happens in Ireland, so it's been fascinating just to watch that and see how people prepare to perform 
Um, new URC season obviously about to go um, lots of change at Munster as we know new coaching ticket um, largely new anyway and some players out not quite the 34 obviously that you've lost um, and a couple in, in <laughs> <laughs> including um, Malachi Fakatoa we had Rory O'Connor on the show during the week and he was talking about like maybe they haven't recruited in the right areas is there a bit of like the sense of the, the sort of slight not so much of a as of a change around the personnel maybe as they would have wanted in specific areas uh, and that coaching ticket been changed around is there almost a bit of a like if they're grow if they're building a bit this year that's enough like not quite a free pass but a kind of a free almost a free pass season no I don't think anyone would look upon it like that I think I would be hugely optimistic I suppose because I know the quality of the of the coaching group and I think the players get so much direction from, from the coaching group. I read Dennis Leamy's interview during the week and I thought his wording and his language was very pertinent and um, I know Dennis well and he's a fascinating competitor but he's right in the fact that Munster have to earn the right to challenge for something. We're talking about it where it's probably for another day but I thought his use of language was very apt uh, and they have some uh, Graham Rountree would be brilliant with, uh, with that group but I think he needs help from his assistants and he's got a great guy in Mike Prendergast and then and the Karaoke and they've Kazi running the academy so there's harmony there I'd say for the first time in a long while and a harmonious coaching group will give direction and will give uh, will shine the light for where the players need to get to because you mean Leinster at the minute are, are far, far superior than where Munster are at. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting season on all fronts, including for yourself as well. Catch up with you around the track. Thanks, it. Cheers. See you guys. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Ronan. on the line there from France. And uh, interesting stuff. As always, it is uh, 20 to 9. It's Friday morning. We have loads of comments coming in. We're going to come back to those in just a little bit. Uh, people starting the pod about Celtic. Actually, it turns out we'll, um, we've got to come back there in just a I can't bit. wait to hear these we comments. Call them back in. Uh, OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Up next, we're going to be joined live in studio. It's going to be, uh, I'm told here, a technical breakdown. And you know who wrote that of uh, Roger Federer's game by the former ten- t- tennis professional Jenny Claffey back after these OTB AM 20 to 9 Friday morning you're watching OTB AM and I'd like to say we're joined in the studio now by former tennis uh, professional OTB AM regular Jenny Claffey Jenny good morning to you Good morning to you guys. How's it going? Not too bad. Good yeah, morning this morning. Is that a absolutely? I've just yeah. put the Kleenex away there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a bit of that going around in the around the office this morning with a few certain characters. Uh, the greatest player in the greatest uh, time in men's tennis uh, was a quote from Barney Rone in the Guardian that I read last night. Is he the goat? Is it a qualified goat? I think it's fair to say he could be the undisputed goat. Um, looking at his tennis records, mm. you know, he's won 20 Grand Slams, 103 career t- titles. He Obviously, he's been surpassed by Nadal and, and Djokovic with Grand Slams, but I think it's, you can still consider him the greatest of all time for what he's done for the sport on and off the court. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? Just with that, because like, it always, at some point, comes back to the numbers and it's hard to stack it up on that side, obviously, but um, I, his all-round... Uh, manner and and way seems to have really elevated him beyond the other two in a, in a way that particularly in Djokovic's case I was trying to think of the football analogies like there's 
Um, he's probably Messi, I guess. Yeah. And Djokovic is Ronaldo. I'm not quite sure it leaves Nadal, to be honest. I haven't got that far in the analogy just yet. <laughs> but his general way of being seems to be a thing that definitely helps elevate him in people's mind. Yeah, he's just a true legend, yeah. like, and a complete role model. And, you know, he is the epitome of a sportsman. Like, he is how he carried himself for all for the 24 years that he was playing tennis was just amazing. You know, he obviously had his ups and downs throughout his career, but he was just a, such a champion. Like, if you look at him, he is somebody with elegance and grace and he respects the game so well mm. and it's just hard to fault him as I said like his game or the person that he was he, he transcends the sport and his legacy will live on yeah, I think it's the off the pitch stuff that's it's so impressive as well and you've obviously been there as a professional tennis player so to do that for 24 years you have to be you know, an unbelievable athlete. Yeah, and his, it's also, let alone his athleticism is fantastic and, you know, it's carried him through 24 years, which is insane, like, a bit like Serena Williams, you know, they've had such a long career, longevity um, in the sport. But off court, you know, he's 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 obviously looked after his body incredibly well as, and, as well and and um, he's just somebody I think over the years he was very clever with how he played his his career you know he picked and choose picked and chose tournaments mm. that suited him the, the surface as well but also just to make sure that he was his body was in tip-top shape when it came to it um, what so what is it from your point of view like we can all sort of geek out about you know what a great guy he was and he did great things for tennis but technically what was so good about him breaking down his game you know his forehand was just arguably the greatest forehand in the game his his technique is so simple on the forehand side mm. he was able to run around his backhand a lot and um, he used his forehand to dictate all of the play pretty much his anticipation of the game was phenomenal he'd be staying very close to the baseline and would take time away from his opponents at all times um, his backhand you know he, he, I would have liked to see him play a little bit more offensively with his backhand but he was still very he was very solid on the backhand side he would play with a lot of topspin whereas his forehand he would mix it up more he was able to hit with like more flat more topspin and angle so he was able to exploit all areas of the court with his forehand and then again his serve was just amazing too he he didn't have the fastest serve in the game but it was just so accurate so he was always able to point out his spots on the court and the, the best thing about that was that the disguise on his serve was amazing so he, he would throw up the ball toss and the opponents would not be able to get a read on where it was going to be going until the last second when he'd contact the ball you'd see by the racket angle face where it was going so um, there was a breakdown I was watching a breakdown of his serve like he was serving down the tee on one side and serving a slice on the same side so they were obviously two very different serves but you up, up until like the last split second you couldn't see where he was going with the serve so that disguise obviously keeps your opponents guessing and, and therefore he was having so much success and winning with that serve and then being able to back it up with that dominant forehand Yeah you mentioned about the power there as well I did read a quote with him at some point early in his career where he was saying like when he felt as if he was hitting the ball he could almost leave a hole in the ground and obviously that sort of diminishes after a while so was that was that um smart sort of disguising of his shots or like that sort of cute play or more technical play was that always a part was he once a power game and then it morphed into something when he got a bit older or was that always there throughout his career well sorry also to mention his movement was amazing too so he had that as well like the anticipation and movement like he just looked like he glided around the court yeah. it was just like it was scary watching him it looked like so effortless and that's mm. how he made the game look but the power he's made adaptations throughout his career on, on his game because that power you can, you can play a power game but he also was a, a servant volleyer as well in the beginning of his career 
like when he beat Pete Sampras in, in Wimbledon 2001 people were looking at him going oh, that servant volley or game style is still a part of the game and then as as his career progressed then he kind of mixed things up a little bit more and then became very dominant with the forehand and playing with the power but he did mix things up so it wasn't just power the way he would play he just had great tactical awareness and that flair on the court to be able, and creativity to be able to mix up his game when he needed to against different oppositions he was like he was on the scene for sort of four or five years before he won his first Grand Slam and I don't know if you can remember that time <laughs> because you're younger than him but do you remember that sort of was was there an excitement about him with people going you know sort of Rory McIlroy-esque this guy is going to sort of win a lot of Grand Slams or was it a more of a slow burner yeah when as I mentioned there the 2001 Wimbledon when he beat Pete Sampras like yeah. Pete Sampras was going for his fifth I think Wimbledon title or something and he sh- he beat him in a, in a I think a shocking like quarterfinal or something um, match and then people started to talk about him then and then there was about 18 months I think or so or, or maybe another two years until he actually won his first Grand Slam so there was a lot of hype there um, and when he won in 2003 in Wimbledon he broke down with Sue Barker in an interview and I think he was kind of saying that this was the, the relief of the pressure expectation that people had been putting okay. on his shoulders and then from there he just dominated for the next five years like he would think he won 12 the next 18 Grand Slams which I think in, in it's, says, it's in, incredible yeah. yeah just phenomenal what that, those records he had set and that's where the argue, I think, com, argument comes in about the, the greatest of all time that period of dominance he had we had never seen before in the sport and then from then you know we then have obviously the Nadal's and Djokovic and I think he drove them on and that's what he they were obviously incredible they are incredible athletes themselves but with those that three that top three I think Federer was the one who, who led that and brought on those guys as a standard and just speaking of Nadal um, it was so nice to hear what he said in response to the statement that he was retiring so he said that he was his friend first and then rival um, and that he wished this day would never come so to have that friendship when they also have been so competitive for the years as well is it's so nice to see and it's a testament then to Federer too Absolutely like it's a complete testament to Federer and all the outpour of um, affection from all of the, of the tennis players obviously the wider the universe love Federer as well but from all the professional tennis players if you see on Twitter or on Instagram there's all these testaments to Federer of how he changed the sport and how he was their idol and their, he's such a role model and his legacy will live on and like it's amazing that he has touched so many of his fellow um, mm. competitors mm. you know normally you go out there and it's a dog eat dog but mm. these guys he's just so lovable and, and he, he did as I said he transcends the sport it's not just his tennis but off court he's just this really underwhelmingly normal guy and I think people can relate to him and that's what's made him so popular as well as his incredible tennis yeah. and his lovely jumpers yeah. <laughs> oh no that was terrible that jacket in Wimbledon <laughs> he'll never live that down it definitely has something like the Liverpool Spice Boys about it for sure they, why, um, so you mentioned the 12 from 18 and then obviously I mean maybe perfectly understandably things started to slow down a bit at that point it's very difficult to maintain that rate and particularly the, the arrival of the two lads and th- we were just discussing before we came on air here Colin was pointing out that the Nadal and Djokovic both had winning records against him why what like why is that yeah, over time, I think that the, those records obviously worked in their favour. In the beginning, um, Federer was the more dominant over the two guys. Um, if you look at the, the two players, like Nadal and, and Federer had a lot of battles, obviously, over the years. But on clay court, Nadal was pretty much always the favourite. So mm-hmm. I want to blame that as the reason why he has, he has a more winning record. Like his record is a little bit bigger. I think it's 25 to 
16 or something like that or it's more than that I think but 24 16 24 16 yeah, yeah so um, it'd be interesting to look at those stats and see what surfaces they were on because yeah. Nadal was so dominant he's the king of clay so how many of those were on clay versus on a, on a hard or grass court mm-hmm. um, and then Djokovic they've obviously they've had played more matches than that so it's closer to those 27 to 24 23 yeah 23 okay yeah well I mean if you look at the games as I said um, I feel like Federer had, has raised their their games their how good they are uh, he had to because if they were if they wanted to catch him they had to improve the elements in their games um, like they're very different styles like if you look at Federer and, and Nadal it's like the warrior versus like this just yeah. <laughs> legend of the sport they're just very different how yeah. they play so the matchup is very different whereas Djokovic plays a little bit more similar to Federer in t- the terms in the, in the way that he plays like he plays quite aggressively he's up on the baseline as well mm-hmm. tries to dictate the points tries to take time away from the opponent so they're quite more of a similar matchup very different characters but similar game styles but um, over the years I think Djokovic has, has managed to figure out ways to beat Federer so I think they've managed to find a hole in his backhand um, particularly Nadal because Nadal plays this very heavy topspin left-handed forehand high into the um, Federer sorry one-handed backhand so it's very tricky for him to step in and take that early especially on clay courts because the idea behind Nadal doing that is to push your opponents back and Federer liked to play close to the baseline and dictate mm. so he was always playing at a higher the ball higher than he'd like and he wasn't able to dominate as much on that side and then with Djokovic as well I think he physically some, in some of the matches outlasts him he had to learn to be so defensively strong because Federer liked to dictate and play offensively Djokovic had to learn then to play he's very defensively and if you look at him he's an incredible athlete um, Djokovic on the court he picks up every ball and can play from every area on the court so I think over the, in more recent years they had the upper hand on him but in the beginning he was the, he was the man Federer and even all those examples that, that you're saying like he drove them on to, to get better to improve their game in order to beat him and it's so important I feel in sport to have people like him like Serena Williams as well you know you have that person who drives tennis on really so yeah he, it's a lot of thanks to, to him for where tennis is even now at the moment yeah hugely like the, thank you to Roger you know yeah. <laughs> but also for like you know bringing up the, the profile of tennis mm. like worldwide mm. you know so many people tuned in to watch tennis because of Roger Federer in, in those early days you know it, it grew huge traction and then these rivalries amazing rivalries began between the t- those top three guys you know Murray had a bit of a look in but not really you know it was mm. really Djokovic Nadal Federer those three these are the guys that would draw the crowds at tournaments like ticket sales went up once jo- once Federer was playing in tournaments he just grew this amazing fan base from all around the world and as I said then he br- grew up the profile of tennis which has been amazing for the sport here and abroad yeah, he does come across as that like really sort of nice guy and it does I was reading a couple of pieces last night one of them about like he had this mad temper when he was younger and <laughs> he got like he had to smash a racket at one point and ended up having to clean the toilet or something. it seems like the most non-Roger Federer thing that I've ever heard that he actually managed to uh, almost get on top of that at some point, and and because there was never any evidence of that, I don't think was there once once he there were yeah he, he definitely had a uh, there's a few videos going around he definitely had a bit of a temper as a kid and would mm. would actually openly talk about that and how he had to learn to manage that like he'd be breaking tennis rackets at ten years old you know there's videos right. of him I think like as a as a little kid doing that and um, but there has been over the years disputes with umpires and whatnot mm. but he always seemed to maintain his cool collected character that he has but you know that's something that can be learned you know because I have to say in my own experience I had a fierce temper as a kid as well you, yeah, yeah I, the first time I broke tennis rackets my mum said yeah, listen you have to buy your own one next right. like so you don't I know tennis rackets so I had to 
work I think I was working at her summer camp it's like I'm 10 years old to try and buy another tennis racket and I never broke another one since why did you break it? I lost a point or something I hated <laughs> right. losing right yeah I'm not never surprised when you hear about Federer when he was younger that that's the way he was like I'm like I, I wouldn't be surprised by that because he's such a fierce competitor and obviously you see what he's done so you'd expect him to almost have that in him and then obviously as you get older you have more experience and you manage that as you go so I wasn't surprised whatsoever to, to hear that I think a lot of the, the greats would be like that yeah but in, especially in, in, in an individual sport yeah. it's all on you so mm. like your frustration comes has to come out some way and like the racket is an easy target but a really interesting fact about that actually is as a kid as that I had like a quite a temper or whatnot. but I remember going moving to Holland or in, for a summer to, to attend the, the summer camps and my coach like, came with me and she said to the coach over there she's like you know now she's got a bit of a temper you know like so I apologise in advance and this I'm like 11 at this time or whatnot. and the coach turns to her and says that's great you can't teach that that's fire in the belly right. you know yeah. you can't teach that to, to kids we can tone it down and train it and try and express it in another way but you can't teach that will to win and that you know that innate drive to be the best yeah. so that served me and obviously served <laughs> well served him a bit better than did me <laughs> Listen, but, you yeah. did okay you did alright you can't be we can't be waking up every morning comparing us all of ourselves <laughs> yeah. to Roger Federer it's not, it's not <laughs> we a, never feel good about ourselves <laughs> um, there was another another piece last night just it was him talking to this reporter about like um, Messi he seemed to be sort of obsessed with Messi almost and he was talking about like when Messi gets the ball and the three range of shot, shots that are the three options that he has, whether it's like the pass, the shoot, or the um, run, I guess. And uh, it led to a conversation about Roger Federer and the 20 options that he had as a, his forehand options, uh, 20 forehand options. Is that a lot? Is 20 options a lot? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the, yeah, it, of course, that's a huge amount. As I, as I mentioned, like he can hit with power, he can hit with spin, he can hit the angles, he can hit down, like it's the direction. Mm. You can just do so much. And like if you look at tennis as a sport, like it's amazing. You have to have this incredible physical ability as well as this technical ability. So it's quite multifaceted. Mm. And then you also have to play on different surfaces. No other sport in the world they change the surface mm. for the athletes to play on so um, yeah yeah, 20 options is quite a lot Like, and it's probably accurate like as I said where you can put the ball on the court there are that many options and he was just so good at putting them in each of those 20 What is he going to do like is he is punditry going to be a thing is he going to get involved in the media is he going to disappear into the limelight and make jumpers for the rest of his life <laughs> he won't make much of a career from that. <laughs> the market will be will be niche <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to see him in the game in the coming years right. he did his, his ending piece and it was something like you know I'll never leave you he said tennis I love you I'll never leave you I can't see him turning into a coach like I don't see that for him he might do a little bit of punditry and commentary I'd say he, that might be where we will see him again but I'd say he'll take some time off obviously he hasn't been around for the last few years as such um, with injuries and whatnot. Mm. Um, but I think he will he might be you know have a bit of two cents to add to some commentary somewhere maybe OTB yeah, you know I'd say, well listen <laughs> we're not in the market at the minute anymore. <laughs> let's just put that in. I mean if he wants to call us who knows um, he, he just seems like such a I mean maybe I'm overstating it but like he almost seems too nice to be a pundit in the way that you have to be in there commentating like you mentioned about Nadal we've become great pals we're not really rivals like if he's to be in there critiquing some of these people who are his friends it's hard to see um, 
it's hard to see him be that sort of cutting pundit almost. Yeah, I, that's why I, I, I kind of find it a struggle to see a, a place for him in tennis. He, you know, he may continue on like the players or the, the council, like he'll have some involvement in the sport. Yeah. I just don't think he'll be front and centre of it. But he did say, you know, it's, it's well, it's over, but it's not over, basically. So we will see him in some capacity. But I can't see him going into a, a role like a, a day-to-day job. I don't think he needs the, the money anyway. So <laughs> he'll have to do something, obviously. And, and I think he loves the sport. And that was really evident through his whole career. He loves the sport. Mm-hmm. So it'll be hard for him to walk away. So hopefully we'll see him in some capacity. Yeah, yeah. I know the tennis world is in mourning today. So uh, commiserations and house private pleas and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. It's, uh, I'm sure the, there'll be plenty more uh, uh, post-mortem said about him as well over the next while. Thanks a million for coming in, Jenny. Thanks, Thanks guys. Enjoyed that. Uh, Pick over Roger Federer's career. It's almost nine o'clock. You're watching OTBAM. Uh, we're going to get to all the comments that have been coming in. We've Alan Quinn lined up as well. Uh, he's going to talk all things URC and uh, plenty more as well. Some reaction to that Ireland emerging squad. Uh, but before all that, on to last night's news round. Will Ritchie and Mick paid tribute to the great Eddie Butler, uh, the brilliant BBC commentator after the uh, tragic news yesterday of his passing. And uh, we'll take a look at that now. There's a beautiful lyricism about his voice. Like You can still hear the fact he'd be talking about someone coming over the top in a rook, but at the same time he can talk beautifully about nationalism and Franco at the same time. Yeah, that, like you could have read a phone book and I could have listened to it, to be honest with you. Just an incredible voice. Um, there's an authority to his voice without uh, a, a crumped condescension, which is an incredible thing to possess. And there's also like a deep sadness when, when someone like Eddie Butler passes away because people who for so, like call sports for so long and, and obviously his playing days were probably uh, before a lot of our times. Um, but for people who kind of call major sporting events and call them so well for a prolonged period of time, there's a constancy there that outlasts even a lot of the people that will be involved in those sporting events. And so to, to lose one of those voices and at the age of just 65 as well, when in that interview too, he had spoken about what comes next and he never kept any trinkets or anything to do with his career or any notes or anything like that because you discard it, you move on to the next thing because the next thing that comes along is going to be better. The next year is going to be better. And it's really difficult to comprehend that for him that that's not going to be the case. But just an incredible, incredible loss. He gave so much to the sports that he loved, so much to the sport in general. And um, God, he'd be missed across many, many fronts. That's Richie on the show last night and you'd have to endorse all of that. He was an absolutely brilliant uh, commentator and very much of his time. Um, it is uh, nine o'clock and you're watching RTB AM with Alan Quinlan standing by. He's going to talk all things our rugby in just a couple of moments' time. Uh, a few comments though before all of that. We've Cole McConaughey who's been in touch on Twitter this morning. He says, Snobbery, this is in relation to our point, sorry, my point at the top of the show that I really felt that the commentary in relation to top all these comments had been dripping with snobbery which had reached its pinnacle. Um, on Paramount with uh, Jamie Carragher and friends. Uh, snobbery to some extent, uh, says Colm here, uh, for sure, and insecurities. Same attitude exists in some parts of states towards soccer. Works both ways. Enda Lynch says that uh, Thierry Henry's point, and a poor one uh, that feeds your snobbery point, is that Todd uses the words, uh, maybe they could learn a few things from US sport. Henry was of the view, who are they to teach us anything? Daft says, and good morning to you. And uh, um, what else have we got in here? Uh, I feel Carragher's point was because Todd Bowley implied that the Premier League has lessons to learn from the US sports, and Carragher thought that he was talking down to the Premier League. Uh, Henri was typical Henri with his groans. Yeah, I think uh, definitely on the point of the soccer in America, 
that is so true because it's either the American football or maybe athletics, things like that. But soccer is really like looked down on, I feel, at times over there. Um, what else have we got here? Finally, someone that plays tennis for uh, for me. Poor Cullum, says Danny Mac. Danny Mac, feature getting squeezed, Cullum. So, I mean, you're the producer of the show. You'll ultimately... <laughs> Where do we go from here? It'll be your decision. Um, uh, Villa could be available soon, which would be a step up from the SPL. Somebody on YouTube, I'm throwing that over there, actually, in a way that I'm well, going to also duck, duck over this way. I would assume that's the inference. Yeah, no. I couldn't see it happening. Not for a couple of years. As I said, I have I've, there no illusion that he might end up going to the Premier League, but uh, even Villa, I think Celtic are a bigger club. Villa would be, I could see how Villa would be very attractive um, in the sense that obviously it is it is a big club. It sits outside the top, I don't know, four or six clubs, whatever, in the mm-hmm. Premier League. But beyond that, in terms of tradition and size and fan base, um, I mean, even location to a degree, I would be a very attractive job. Like if, like, I mean, I don't, it, what would Ange Postacoglu have to achieve at Celtic to be linked with a United or a City or whatever? It feels like, it doesn't feel like he's in the conversation for those jobs at the minute. Now look at the Graham Potter thing happened and that's maybe yeah. sort of surprising in some way and there might be a lot of comparisons there. So who knows? I'm certainly not uh, saying that he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to take on a gig like that. You would you would think that actually the trajectory is on at the minute. That might be absolutely in, in his radar. But beneath that, Villa would feel like one of those jobs that is probably um he's probably gonna he will be he will be linked with if it if and I think quite soon when it becomes available. I don't think the time is right is probably the, the the big thing at the minute, but I think for Ange, what does he need to do? Well, I think from where the club was and what he has done in this short period of time that he's had these players, you know, he's only had really a full pre-season with them this year and to see the type of football they're playing, the type of play they're playing, the environment that they're in, they're, you know, they, they all buy into what he's saying mm. um, and they all have that winning mentality and they know what Celtic's about. So, yeah, I think, you know, he needs to win everything, really, in Scotland this year, just with the team, not to not to go elsewhere. He needs to win because the, the team and the talent that he has there is, I, I don't want to say, is it the best ever Celtic team? It, we have to wait and see, but it definitely has the fruits to be. Mm. Like, if you, if you look at some of the players, like Giada, Kyogo, they're world-class players, and I, I, I don't say that lightly. Like, I, I honestly do believe it, and... I think we'll see a lot of them uh, to come in the in the years to come. But uh, for and I think he's going to want to win everything in Scotland, and he's going to want to have a say within the the Champions League. I think he's going to want to be playing football in Europe after Christmas, and um, they definitely want to put up a better performance against Real Madrid when they they have to go to to Real. That's going to be tough. And in the next two games, they really uh, need to get performances and and wins. They just need to be clinical because that's been the problem. Like in the last uh, in the last game, especially. Like they had so many chances, they had sixteen shots, six on target, um, and yeah, Shakhtar Donetsk had five shots, two on target, and they came away with a draw. So um, it's just to be that bit clinical. But these things don't happen overnight. Where we were talking to Ronan O'Gara, there, like it's it's building. You know, you have to build these things. You know, things take time. You're bringing new players in. Everybody has to buy into the system. It doesn't just happen overnight in a, in a few months. And you can see that it's slowly starting to happen. And, yeah, I don't think Ange is going to be leaving Celtic anytime soon. 
<laughs> oh, you hope you won't. They were really good against Real Madrid. I've just remembered, I absolutely did watch that game and they were really good against Real Madrid. Especially the first half. And it was half. almost against the run of play when Madrid scored. Yeah. And then suddenly and things opened it, up. It, it and opened yeah. up a bit and it's hard to judge, I, no more than the Roger Federer point, it's hard to judge any team against a team like Real Madrid because they're in absolute elite air. But they were really good and looked looked very good. I'm not saying that in any... Um, they, they were very good. Um, uh, Enda says Roger's excuse for leaving Celtic was that they wouldn't spend to help uh, to help him get further in Europe and kept in budget and is doing well in Europe so far. Some managers need money uh, to do their job. Uh, of course, it's progression for Big Ange like it was for Brendan Rogers, says Conor Costello. Celtic fans can never see that though, and you become public enemy number one. Uh, and Maguire Sam says, "Give it to those cheerleaders, Ashling. Snobbery about the EPL is insane." <laughs> Oh, I said that I don't think I do think eventually he may go. It is a, it is a jump up, um, but at the moment with with the likes of Brighton and Villa, I I actually genuinely think that Celtic's a, a bigger club. That's my view. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair. And you're on the record. You're I'm on, on the record. record I know. About so three times that. now. <laughs> um, right. Here you are watching OTPAM. It's uh, after nine o'clock. And good morning to you, wherever it is you're watching us this morning. Uh, loads of great comments coming into us there about the tennis and the football and all sorts. So do keep them coming in between now and ten. Uh, we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And here's what's happening on OTP Sports Radio over the course of the day. Half past eleven this morning will be football kickoff. It'll be Jer. It'll be Cullum. And it'll be a guest Clive Allen today who Cullum. Uh, famously went to meet at uh, Tottenham a few weeks ago and then Clive never turned up uh, oh. I mean, yeah exactly Oh, exactly. Wow. There was, oh, he was making such a big deal about it. He was like, he had everybody in the, never mind about the office, in the entire building told about his trip to Tottenham and how Clive Allen wanted to meet up with him. And then, you know. <laughs> oh my God, he's in my ear here saying that never, everything you're saying never is happened. true. It just never happened. Oh, to be gold at one o'clock, uh, Joe chats to Ruby Walsh. We've Mount Rushmore. It's the double Mount Rushmore then at uh, three today. Four o'clock, Alan Keane is in the hot seat for the League of Ireland Legend chat. And then an Irish football special with Given Quinn McAteer, uh, all in conversation with Kevin Caban. That is at uh, six o'clock. And uh, also to uh, mention as well that you can uh, follow uh, OTB across all of our social channels. Subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the very latest uh, and best in latest sports content as well. Uh, the WSL finally gets underway this weekend. Obviously, it was delayed with a lot of the stuff last weekend and they're going straight in with round two. So they'll come back to um, round one again, but they're straight in with round two. And I believe that the game tonight between Arsenal and Brighton, uh, half seven kickoff, isn't going to be televised, which is, yeah, I mean, look, at, I know it's. A function of all the madness that's gone on over there, but God, it's such a shame. Like, because the opportunity to get in early in the season, a team like Arsenal, who we're obviously very interested in, um, along with some of the other ones, but just a chance to get it on TV and 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 absolutely, like, and even the hype, uh, yeah, and the hype uh, around the Euros, like you know, yeah. just to continue that on because I think we're at a place now where women's football is in a really good place. So, you know, to be getting these games, which there's a, a lot of hype around Arsenal, you know, and um, Brighton too, but they, you know, there's a, people are wondering what Arsenal are going to do this year. I think they lost only by a point last year. You know, it was unfortunate. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of exciting times there. So I think everybody would have liked to tune in. And even from an Irish perspective, obviously, um, we've Katie McCabe and, yeah, she's doing fantastic stuff at the minute. So, yeah, you'd be wanting to tune in to see that. Yeah, there's so many of those teams with Irish interest that it's it is going to be a watch for us. Um, and yeah, it's just it is disappointing it's not on the TV. Like there was even was it last weekend? Was it last Saturday night? It was Piedmont against uh, Shelburne on TG Carr, and I ended up tuning into it, and it was a great watch. And um, they were talking about the sponge uh, drioct. 
The magic, okay. the magic sponge. Oh, right. Which is, uh, <laughs> My that. Irish is great, obviously, yeah, yeah, as you can yeah, see. Listen, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Uh, but yeah, there's, anyway, there's other fixtures, obviously, this weekend. You have Villa City on Sunday lunchtime, uh, Leicester Tottenham Sunday afternoon. You've United Reading tomorrow, uh, West Ham Everton on Sunday, and uh, Liverpool Chelsea is going to be um, I mean I've said it's going to That's be a belter Chelsea will be uh, hot favourites to win that mm. but there's so much Irish interest at Liverpool uh, that Sunday evening at uh, 5 o'clock as well So and Jess who is going to be doing her, making her debut for Aston Villa as well so that's really exciting uh, 20 year old from Finglas so yeah we'll be watching out for that I'm really excited for her she said her whole family is going to be heading over for the game as well so yeah exciting times the next Katie McCabe she was described yes. on uh, the Koi Gig pod mm. before the um, might have been before the Finland game, um, which is, I mean, it's and a, then in the Slovakia game you could see like she was dangerous up that wing and she's just so smart on the ball for the the age she is as well. She was always doing the right thing, you know. She she got into trouble, she turned back and she linked so well with Katie. Yeah. Um, and I, I spoke to Katie McCabe about that after the game of how well she linked up with Jess and like her face lit up when I mentioned Jess and she was like, I'm so happy for Jess. Like I'm so happy that Jess has had this big performance. She got player of the match as well that day. And yeah, I think there is really big things to come from Jessie. We've seen it through the years that she was always up and coming she was one to watch, but uh, it feels like she she's just really coming on to the scene now, and she's been in that professional environment in Aston Villa, and that that was a big step up going mm-hmm. from Shelburne, and yeah, she she's loving it over there. So yeah, I think she's definitely uh, one of these players who could be, as you said, maybe the next Kate McCabe. Yeah, exactly. I didn't say it. I'm just re-quoting somebody else. Um, <laughs> just, I mean, if it turns out that she is, then I'm happy to jump on board. And by the way, of course, to mention as well that uh, Shamrock Rovers' uh, job, and it's crossed a lot of the back pages this morning, um, has become very difficult uh, after that 3-0 uh, defeat in Ghent last night. Um, they were 2-0 down at half-time. And yeah, it becomes, they again, no more than the Celtic point previously in their opening game, showed real sort of intent and looked mm-hmm. absolutely at ease with with, uh, with the game they didn't manage to get a point out of that obviously but the defeat last night leaves them uh, very much up against it now as well that was uh, Rovers losing in Ghent last night right? probably playing those games consistently at that level is yeah. probably what it is but just to mention as well the WSL you can actually catch those games on the FA player so the, tune into that to, to catch them there you go good stuff you can watch it uh, it's after uh, 10 past 9 now we have Alan Quinlan standing by and he's up after these OTB AM. It is uh, 30 minutes past nine. You're watching. Did that come out? It's 30 minutes past nine. Uh, you're watching OTB AM. And I'd say that Al Quinlan joins us in studio. Morning, Quinny. Morning, guys. How are you? Good. I see Gareth Brooks was down at training in Munster during the week. I see, that, all, yeah. Yeah. I see that. Um A surprise visit. The, the boot cut jeans were out and the. You know, they're never too far from Munster players down there, I'm sure, anyway. No, no. I would have liked to mention myself. Well, have you been, uh, been at a gig? No, I haven't actually. No, no. Staying away from the crowds. No interest. No, no, no. Adrian's looking for tickets. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still on the search. I'm not. I'm not. Put it it out there. Um, Loads of rugby to talk about. Uh, There was one headline that grabbed my attention this morning. It's in the back of the page of the Irish Independent. First, concerned by lack of communication over Ireland tour. And effectively, is a point. So this is like an emerging Ireland tour. And his point is that it's not so much, it doesn't feel so much like an emerging Ireland squad as in the next layer of players beneath that, that um, you know, the touring party would New Zealand or Six Nations squad. He's saying it's not that level that you would want to be looking at those players. He's saying it's a level, at least one, if not two, below that. He's wondering if it's um, almost an emerging academy squad and basically questioning the value of it. Yeah, um, I suppose he has some merits in what he's saying. I think if you asked any of the provinces, would they, 
once um, you know I think Leinster have 11 is it 10 from Munster 8 from Ulster and Five or something from I might have my numbers wrong, but there's mm. there's an there's a good few um, obviously from each of the province. Connacht have five, but I'm sure um, none of them want to lose the players um, throughout that period. You know, it's they're possibly missing two two URC games. But we've always had this situation, Adrian, where we're kind of looking for something different in preparation for World Cups mm. um, obviously if you go through all the names will 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 there be players in that 35 man squad who'll, who'll get into Andy Farrell's squad next year well maybe not a few definitely have a chance you know the ones that stick out are Robert Balakoon, um Kieran Frawley um, someone like Nathan Doak could really make a push you know but Fez is what he's saying is yeah for sure that a lot of these guys are not actually starting if there was if there was um uh you know URC a big URC game or or knockout URC game or a European game would would many of these guys be starting no probably not um it almost feels like they're building for a world cup beyond the next one well you know you might if you get if you got a couple out of it um it w- and we look back next year and say well it worked and it was part of the success mm-hmm. I think the big plus about going away on tour and I've said this about the, the women's tour to Japan there's huge benefits from being together as a group learning uh, about the dynamics of, of being an international player preparation um, the quality of training the intensity um, the calls all that kind of stuff I've always kind of been an advocate for younger players being brought into six nation squads or November squads to train with the with the with the with the best players and the guys who are on top of their game. So you don't have the same situation here where you've uh, half and half a lot of experience and then you're bringing young players but look we'll wait and see. I think it probably as I said doesn't suit all the provinces and um but I don't know I think look the the communication I think they probably would have been told this a while back that this was happening it was kind of blind we were all blindsided by a little bit mm-hmm. but if it brings the players on and it's beneficial um, well then so be it but look it's kind of hard to disagree with yeah. Fez in what he's saying but I do think that you know I just think of the World Cup all the time we're thinking how can we do things different I came back from the World Cup in 19 and we were thinking oh, pick players abroad maybe they come back with different ideas do things a little bit differently so this is a different type of tour it's a unique situation and there's a lot of players in that squad who I believe will be international regular international players um, some of the young players who, who were on the 20s last year I think that can be really beneficial for them and you get a chance to work with the coaches really closely. So I think, you know, the impact of, of Paul O'Connell with some of those forwards um, and just seeing his approach, his mentality and stuff like that can only bring guys on. So maybe the provinces will get back a better player when they come back from this three-week three, three week tour. Mm-hmm. We're not really sure, you know, when the, in the games they'll play. They're going to be very physical anyway, playing the, uh, the games over there. But um, hopefully it's beneficial, but it is a little bit risky for sure.
Yeah, in the press conference we were asking Simon Easterby just about how you came about picking these players and he said there was a lot of dialogue with the clubs and that some players that they might have picked they actually thought maybe will benefit better from being with their clubs at Playing the moment. matches, yeah. And then some of the players that we've picked we need to see are they okay in this situation? Are they able to step up to this level? So they want to see them in around the environment of the international, you know, of the Ireland team. Yeah, they, could, they wouldn't have completely blindsided the, the provincial coaches because they all work together and communicate um, so they wouldn't have just gone well we're taking this number of players like it or lump but I'd say there might have been a bit of horse trading for one or two guys and said look this guy really needs to go to the next level You, someone like Dermot Barron I don't want to be isolating players but you know he's a very exciting young player in Munster he's still pretty young but he hasn't got that taste of what, what it's like to get up to the next level and, and maybe so I, I think looking at the names and going through the list Adrian they would have said all these guys are potential internationals in the future and I get what Fez is saying about you know playing A games but being away on tour you know you can get a really close look at guys their mentality their body language their attitude have they got leadership qualities to develop um, so I think it'll be beneficial from that point of view um, and I think the provinces will be fine. They all have big squads. It's not as if yeah. they're 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 completely um, stripped of all their their, their players. They will still have have decent teams for those matches while they're away. Simon was asked as well. Sorry, just about um, the November series. Would some of these players feature? And he said the plan is to to look at players that they they might feature which I thought was maybe a little bit surprising. As you said, I thought it was maybe something for the future. But he said. Yeah, maybe. That yeah, they, they I think there, there's a handful in there, definitely, who, mm. who could easily... Um, Max Deegan has played before. He's a super yeah. player. He could You could put him in against South Africa, Australia now, and, and you'd be confident yeah. that he can perform there. Um, Alex Kandelan from Munster again, you know, played so well last year. Um, it'll benefit him being in around that scene as well. OK, it's different. And, you know, people can say, well, this is a totally different situation in playing a big test match. Um, Joe McCarthy, Scott Penny has has the ability. Keen Prendergast was on the New Zealand tour. Um, Roman Salano in there, and this is probably one you're going to ask me about Munster. You know the tight-head situation there. You know there's yeah. obviously a lot of promise with him, um, but he has to kind of take hold now, learn how to really kind of manage his his body himself, and hopefully take that next step up. Um, incredibly powerful. Um, Are they a bit light in that department? Rory O'Connor was on during the week because it's a good segue into the start of the URC, URC obviously, this weekend uh, and they're in action on Saturday afternoon. What, um, in terms of, like, Munster, his, his point was like that they, obviously, uh, Fakato is a big sort of name, recruitment or whatever, but that Roundtree wasn't in, as involved maybe as he might have liked uh, in the recruitment to start off with and that, secondly, they're very light in that front row area particularly yeah they are light in that front row area and I think if you if you and that's the concern I think Connacht were in the market for a tight head Munster would love to have brought in top quality international tight head and mm. you know go out with the checkbook and, and fill these gaps um, I think I think the RFU were probably saying look um, Kenyon Knox Roman Salano let's see what they have this year and if they don't make it then well then um, 
but I think you know obviously if you're coming up against like in that Toulouse game where the scrum creaked and the front row was under so much pressure and Toulouse are bringing off and bringing on an international front row to replace the already international front row that's that started the game it's it's difficult it's difficult if and you're trying to win European to really address that no they probably haven't been allowed Adrian you know and that's the reality so I, I, you know you can be criticised um, but I think there is maybe if we see more of Kenyon Knox and Roman Salanoa um, Stephen Archer is obviously there and James French maybe we just we just need to see more of them and hopefully that they get a run of games you know Roman Salanoa has had a lot of injuries um, the potential is there Kenyon Knox has, is, is a really good rugby player as well um, you'll only find out more about these guys and they play games regularly so they've got to get regular game time I think to see them but of course it's an issue and it's a challenge for them and um, you can't it's not like Premiership Soccer you can go out and just sign players and fill gaps and spend money and um, I think they're restricted and they are if you want to develop these two guys they're, they're both Irish qualified mm. so if you bring in an international overseas player well they get less games then um, but then it begs the question are they good enough mm. are they good enough in that big game well we'll find out more this year I think they need a little bit of luck Monster with, with those two guys they obviously need a little bit of luck with, with RG Snyman if he comes back and plays regularly for him mm. um, huge boost well he's a game changer isn't he you know and if he plays regularly you know he can make such a big impact so um, the, on the balance of it if you kind of go back five and back line they look like they've they've a lot of good players, and if they change the way they play and 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 use their skill set a little bit more and develop their skill set, well, they'll be there thereabouts. But the reality is, you know, the big crunch games will they be a little bit short up front. We'll wait and see. Will monster fans give them a bit of slack this season? Do you think in the in the sense of obviously the changes in the coaching front and a bit of building going on there? Ronan was on earlier on, and he was saying that like there's a great sense of cohesion, maybe in a way that. Um, there hasn't been uh, previously for whatever reason but given the, the backroom staff um, so given that that's happened and for whatever reason they haven't really brought, brought in maybe a huge number of players will Munster fans give them a bit of a free pass no matter what happens this season or is there still an expectation of well I, t- I don't think you completely get a free pass and I think um, Andy Kiriakou Dennis Leamy Mike Prendergast and Graham Rountree and the rest of the coaches that are there well, no, there's, a, there's pressure. There's pressure in, in that job and there is expectation. And um, I think what Munster fans will want to see is 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 a bit of bite, um, enthusiasm to try and play. Um, is that going to work every time? No, it's not. You have to be pragmatic sometimes, depending on the weather. If you get, get ahead in games, how you manage games and stuff like that. So I think... You know, they want to see fight. They want to see ambition a little bit to try and play. Um, and I said this during the week, the kind of the game that jumps out is that Connacht game last de- mm. December up in, in the sports ground. That was the one that kind of was a pivotal kind of turning point for people and, and brought on a lot of frustration with, you know, Munster passing the ball 45 times in the game. I know the conditions were dreadful, but Connacht should have won that game by a lot more. And I think that frustrates people... You know, you you contrast that to coming out of the Aviva um, after the Toulouse game, and Munster lost the game mm. on penalties. Mm. But people were like, "Yeah, that's." There's no one under any illusions, Adrian, that they're going to win the European Cup and that they should. I think people realise that, and that's where the patience will come in. 
as regards that expectation but they want to see some ambition more ambition mm. and more fight and the players expressing themselves a little bit more so the game plan under Johan Van Gran and Stephen Larkham you know we could play that game back in 2006 because we had an international pack of forwards where we could tuck the ball up the jumper and just wear down the opposition and that was the reality of it. We were probably more forward orientated then. Where, you know, you had a nine and ten in strings and Rog who could just keep the ball in front of you. It was on a play to them a lot of the time. Um, 2008 was different. We had Dougie Howlett, Maffey, um, Topoki. Mm. You know, we were able to play differently. But you kind of have to cut your claw according to the me- your measure. And I think Munster were trying to play that a little bit forward orientated in the last couple of seasons and maybe just didn't have that killer punch so I think they've got to find a different way um, be more energetic in their in their, in their their play and, and dynamic and trying to you know obviously retain the ball but play at a high intensity and I think that'll be the challenge so there does need to be patience mm. I think it's, it's 11 years now since Munster have won a trophy and I think after that that's that win in 2011 that league win against Leinster and Holman Park I think would you have kind of gone well it'll, Munster, in 11 years time we'll be, we'll be chatting and Munster won't have won a trophy since now they've won a couple of finals and they were close enough in Europe um, so there does need to be patience but um, I still think we need to see improvements as we go along mm. yeah so, like, what's successful? Silverware at the end of the year or seeing improvement? Because I, I do agree as well. Patience, like, anytime any new head coach or new management come in to, to any team, you know, you have to give it time to, to build because I don't think it's even a, a three, four month thing. I think it's, no, it's going to take it's, quite it's a while. It's different coaches, different voices. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what Prendy uh, and Dennis Leamy will bring um, and on the way they want to try and implement and improve the skill set. I think Munster have struggled to play at a high tempo, high intensity and really execute when you get into multi-phase. Um, I think that's what they will try and do. Um, and we've seen glimpses of it. And I said this a few times. It's, uh, you know, you don't want to be kind of really cri- over-critical of the previous regime because I think the players have to take responsibility as well. At times, you know, you're out in the field and, uh, y- you know, there's plenty of leaders there. Um what, what's re, what's a realistic return, Ashley? I think being in knockout rugby, I think you have to you have to kind of be in the knockout stages um, of Europe and of of uh, in the URC, and then you kind of get in a position where if they get things right on the day and they have a bit of luck and they're not missing a couple of their big players, mm. well then they can have a rattle off a team, and you'd never know. You you, you 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 will never know if you're not there, mm. and I think that's that's where they have to be. Um, the South Africans coming into the URC has changed the dynam- mm. dynamic, yeah. and just look at Connacht last year; they finished eleventh, uh, miss, missing out in Europe, not getting into the playoffs. Um, there was three South Africans in that that gr- group at the top, so they're going to be really. They've changed the dynamic of the league for the better, I think. Um, so I think it makes it more exciting the league this year and you know Leinster are obviously overwhelming favourites again and rightly so but you have to have a lot of depth in your squad to be fighting on both fronts and you just look how good Leinster were last year or look at the squad they have and you know they lost final and a semi-final Um, on another day they could have won both those trophies you know
Um, th- and we shouldn't forget that Munster are actually second favourites to win the thing. So I think I've over- been overstating that aspect of it. Talk to us about Connacht, will you? Because they, they obviously um, have let go a few. They've brought in a few Leinster heads, Adam Byrne, uh, Hawkshaw, Peter Dooley. And then the switches again, like in the back room with Andy Friend, obviously. I don't know, he's is it a move up or whatever it yeah, is? Yeah, director, director of rugby. rugby yeah, I still think Andy Friend is going to be overseeing everything. Yeah. And uh, Peter Wilkins, obviously, with, with Ireland. There's a bit of Razzle Rasmus about it almost. Yeah, it? probably. And I think they just look at the Dana dynamic of, of he probably wants to oversee everything and develop the coaches more with Mossy Lawler and uh, um, he's gone in as a tack coach and um, Collie Tucker do more with the forwards Peter yeah. Wilkinson mm. and maybe just gives him a little bit of a chance to to oversee training from a little bit of a distance I'm sure he'll still be involved um, that's it. He said, um, uh, I was talking to him during the week and he spoke about it's knowing what your weapon is. And he said, I know what mine is. I know I'm good with, with players and um, man management speaking to them. And he said he went around the whole coaching team and said, OK, you're, you're better at attack. We need to put you there. And he said it was just seeing what we're all good at. And to be and honest, being, being a head coach, going out onto the field, um, you know, planning the sessions, reviewing the sessions, there's a lot to it, you know what I mean? So it probably gives him a little bit of a chance to kind of look at everything yeah. and have a bit more time to plan better and stuff like that. But I think the new players coming in, Peter Dooley, Josh Murphy, Adam Byrne, um, from Leinster, Hawkshaw as well, they, they'll definitely help and improve him. Seamus Hurley Langton, it's a... <laughs> I don't want to in any way be disrespectful but you think there must be some bit of Irish the Seamus is spelt S-H-A-M-U-S uh, Hurley Langton he's a New Zealander and he's impressed him a lot um, I think he played for Manawa too and he's a, he's a loose forward uh, Brian Ralston another Australian who played sevens as well came from Western Force so again they're a little bit unknown yeah. um, but you know the way Connacht play I think Connacht probably just need to manage games better and be be kind of a bit more ruthless. I think the ambition that they show and the way they they play the game, it's probably the flip side of of what Munster need to do. You know, you know they need to be a little bit more pragmatic and control tempos in the games and stuff like that. Um, more, but you know, it was a disappointing uh, season from last year. We know they can score tries. We know they're very dangerous uh, when they get on the front foot. Um, and it's a tough task from first up going to, going to Belfast to play Ulster on Saturday night. Um, you know, Ulster probably finished the season strong. Should have been in the URC final when you think of what happened against the Stormers that late, late score they conceded. Uh, they blew Munster away in that quarter final. So, you know, that should be a cracker. But look, it's very early days. It's hard. You know, we won't have teams to let her on. And it's. Um, it's it's a tricky one, but I think getting a bit of momentum at the start is really important for for, for yeah, all the provinces. Can, as they always say, you can't win it after the first few rounds, but it can be it can be slipping. Yeah, well, you just think if you miss out in playoffs by a point or two, and you go back to the I first know, round or two, and you you know yeah. What um, did you watch the Bledisloe yesterday? Yeah, I did. Yeah. What so in a word, right call, wrong call, the end. Uh, Hard call on 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 on, on Australia. Yeah. Very hard call. Letter the law. He did warn him a number of times. Mm-hmm. We've never seen it. I think Matthew Reynal should have said, "If you don't hurry up, clearly, mm-hmm. I'm going to give New Zealand a scrum." You know, I think he had been kind of. He he had warned him a couple of times. Yeah. He warned him and warned him, but he should have said it out loud that if you don't hurry up and take this kick, yeah. I'm going to give a scrum to New Zealand. 
um, and he did that it was a big controversial call obviously New Zealand went on to win the game it was a crazy game Adrian mad like New Zealand were 31-13 up on 55-60 minutes and I'm thinking they're going to put 50 on Australia here they were brilliant New Zealand were Australia's response phenomenal um, they come back um, Nick White gets White's a penalty 37-34 yeah. <laughs> Whiplash that over Whiplash that over with his cowboy well, legs the There was one incident there was one, inci- there was one incident in that game that was uh, really disappointing I think and it was the Darcy Swain clear out on um, on Quintipaya mm. um, he should have got a red card for that mm. I think um, the TMO did alert Matthew Reynal Actually, they got two yellow cards in that in that sequence, and that from that breakdown, Tom Wright was 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 yellow carded. And then when they looked, and the TMO called Matthew Ray and Al, and um, Darcy Swain comes in from the side, and he kind of grabs Quinn to to his knee, and it bent inwards. Cynical enough, he's yeah. out out for for a long time. Did he deliberately go in to hurt a player and damage his knee? I don't think so. But it was really, really reckless. If you go anywhere near the lower limbs, and we talk a lot about pr- protecting players with the, the high shots, um, just look at Dan Levy, what happened to him a number of years ago, his career over. Mm-hmm. If you go anywhere near the lower legs like that, it's it's it can Dangerous. be career-ending. So he should have got a red card. And uh, But it was a crazy match, a brilliant, crazy brilliant game to watch. The, the, one of Foley's teammates was over his shoulder when you watched the replay, roaring at him for about 10 seconds before Renal takes a decision to, to award the penalty, to boot it out over the line. That's where I started to lose sympathy, I have to say, for Australia. Now, having said that, if it was us on the other end of it, you'd be crying blue murder, you'd be saying, ah, typical, going with the, with the All Blacks. But it is a, a healthy and timely reminder to all of us that they ain't dead until they're dead because... Mm. I mean, even, they still needed to go and win it. Like, incredible. Yeah, yeah. The, they're, um, they're the whistle has never gone with beast. them, you know, and um, still have some issues. Um, but they, you know, for 40, 50 minutes yesterday, they looked really, really dangerous. And yeah. uh, so it was, it was an incredible game. Um, Quinny, thanks million for coming in. Enjoy the rugby over the weekend. Look forward oh, to chatting. We forgot to say just about Eddie Butler. Yes, um, uh, I know we're under pressure time-wise, but that was devastating. What happened yeah. to him? A lovely man. So you know, I met him in the circuit so many times over the years. He was a brilliant, brilliant commentator, and uh, you know, it's a shocking kind of situation. And um, I was shocked when I heard it, as everyone in the rugby community. You know, he was a very, very popular man, Eddie Butler, and and. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family and friends, in, in, and particularly people in Welsh rugby as well. Yeah, the voice of rugby, and well, uh, well said, Quinny. A um, few comments coming in at uh, 25 to 10 before we leave you here. Um, Derek Yo says Adrian describing GA currently as fallow times is outrageous. We didn't have enough pitches in our club last night. So many adult teams training for championship, busiest time of the year, which of course is not what I said in relation to <laughs> GA, but uh, you know. Derek, don't let that uh, don't let that stop you. Um, Daniel Croak about Federer says having none of uh, this. He's the goat for what he's done on or off the court. What does off the court have to do with anything? I want to know who the best player is, not who's sound. Well, I think if you're going to actually get to that level, a lot of the time it's the player that's sound off the court and on the court and is able to manage it as a whole is the great in the end in my I view I think you've got to take it in their own I think that's fair enough and Pwell says Adrian obviously uh, couch sports fan going to uh, going at whatever's on the satellite channels GA clubs at the moment extremely busy playing uh, playing wise from under 5 to adults but it's not on Sky slash BT get out Adrian <laughs> 
I don't know. Fair, fair, fair. fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, I'd accept that on the chin. Right, oh, it is um, uh, 9.37. It's Friday morning. Uh, thanks, Melia Ashing. Enjoy that. Enjoy yes, your weekend. Absolutely. Thanks, Chat Adrian. to you next week. And uh, brought to you live each morning, of course, by Gillette Labs for an effort that's finished here today. We're back on Monday morning. It'll be Ger and Johnny Ward. We're going to have the Gillette Labs performance rankings. Football journalist Ben Jacobs and Martin Lipton are going to focus on the weekend's Premier League action uh, that's going ahead, of course. And we'll have a reaction as well to that first round of URC games. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.